Hello and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. You're listening to the 41st episode of the show and joining me, Liam Edwards, to once again send a treasured games media member off to a deserted land to play just eight games for the rest of their days. Although I would feel incredibly cruel sending my guest this week off to a deserted land due to her current status in life. <laughs> my, my guest this week is someone I have tried desperately to get on the show right from the very start and I'm very excited to have her here finally. If you know anything about games media then you'll know really she needs no introduction, but for those who are a little unsure, just let me fill you in a little. She's been writing about games and media for over 10 years, starting out as a freelancer and contributing to sites such as Eurogamer and VG247. In 2011, she became IGN's UK games editor and led the UK side of IGN for over two years. That was until 2014, when it was announced Kotaku were creating a UK side to partner with their US team. My guest was hired to lead once again and is in her current role as editor of Kotaku UK. As well as these impressive roles, she's also written for national newspapers and appeared on TV. She's even found the time to write a book all about Dark Souls. Her book, You Died, was released earlier this year. She's won an incredible amount of awards as well, and at this year's GMAs, won Journalist's Journalist Award, an award I really can't say very well. My guest this week, I'm very excited to say, is Kotaku UK's Keza McDonald. Hello, Keza. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? I'm excellent. I think we should explain I, for, for your dear listeners that I'm currently on maternity leave. Hence yes, the, I was going to say. <laughs> the unfeasibility of an island existence at this point. <laughs> how how is the How are you adjusting to life, um, basically being free to play whatever games you can it's, without having to be ordered to play games It's instead? a weird one. I'm a bit of a workaholic. <laughs> so it's been, oh, I imagine. It's been a little bit Very strange um, not having to do anything. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been it's, it's been odd. I had I had this big stack of games to play, and I thought I'm just I'm finally going to have time. I'm not going to have time once baby arrives, so I'm going to play all of these. And I've I've only managed two. I've done two. It's not that bad, well, I guess. What are the two you've got through so far then? Uh, one that is a forthcoming game that I probably shouldn't say I've played. Um, okay. And the other is the first Uncharted. The first Uncharted. Yes. Out of all the games you could have played, the uh, first Uncharted. That's decided, interesting. It was weird. well. I decided because I'd, I'd never got more than a few hours into any of the Uncharted games, and I started. Okay. I started up Uncharted Four, and I thought, I don't know what's going on here. I might as well just play all of them now. I've got time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm halfway through Uncharted Two now as well. So I was just going to say, what's next? Uh, I guess. Are you are you going to go through all of the Uncharted? Yep, I'm going to do all the Uncharted. I'm playing Pokemon Sun and Moon concurrently i'm also i i blasted through titanfall 2's single player most of it which is yesterday. excellent so oh. it was really good isn't it yeah it's very very good yeah so people should play that game <laughs> i know it's, 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 one of, it's been a strange because this november has been such a strange one i think for the world um at large and for games as well that a lot of these a lot of very good games have flown slightly under the radar apparently yes. Watch Dogs 2 is really good who'd have thunk I know it's a it's crazy this year actually the tail end of this year we're seeing almost a big release every week up until the halfway through December. Yeah, it's, and it's, they've all been really good so far. Um, definitely, like in the high scoring. Oh my god, what do I play first? Kind of. Yeah, I mean, originally my my, uh, my maternity leave was designed to coincide with Final Fantasy XV's original release date. Yes, but uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they screwed that up. But I should have a week or so to play Final Fantasy XV. Is now now it's cutting it close. <laughs> God, I'm so, I the more the more I see because obviously here in Japan, Final Fantasy is still this iconic um, 
symbol of gaming and Japan being proud of its gaming industry. And so I'm seeing a heck of a lot of Final Fantasy adverts here and I get more and more excited with each passing passing advert and I'm still cautiously optimistic that it'll be that it'll be great. So uh, yeah, fingers I was crossed. Say that the, I'm, I'm on the hype train for this one. I just really hope it'll be good. If it's not, it'll be like, yes. oh, how disappointing. <laughs> They've spent all the money in the world on it, and it's not any good. Well, it's funny because I was reading it. I was re- I don't know what I was reading actually. I was reading a, something. It was a quote from uh, Hashimoto at Square Enix, and he was saying uh, someone asked him about Final Fantasy 16, and uh, I'm thinking, God, I bet that man just doesn't can't even think about 16 <laughs> after how cry. long 15's taken. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll be dead before 16 appears. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kez, it is absolutely it's wonderful to finally have you here and to finally have you on the show. We've been planning this for a, a long time now. Indeed. Obviously, many things have happened. You are a very busy lady. Um but let's talk a little bit about you and how you started getting into games before we moved into your final games. Um so how did you sort of get involved with writing about video games then? Um did you always want to do it? Did you um, just give it a shot once and enjoyed it, or how, how's your story start? I'm one of those strange people that decided what they wanted to do when they were eight years old and then actually managed to do it. You know, <laughs> uh, most people would have picked fireman or spaceman or pop star, but I picked video games writer. Um, when I was about, I think I was about eight or nine. I started playing games um, when I was seven. Um, my parents were my parents are a bit older. And they were in their 40s when I was born. So they had no okay. idea about games at all. And they were, they were kind of mildly wary of them in general. Um, but I, I got a SNES finally um, for my seventh, for Christmas when I was seven, me and my brother. And, um, you know, I kind of played around on it. I really enjoyed uh, the Mario games. We, we got Mario All-Stars with it, which still the best game bundle that's ever existed, apart from perhaps the Xbox. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until I got a copy of Link to the Past which is my first Zelda game. Um, yeah. The, the games properly kind of borrowed their way into my into my imagination. Um, Link to the Past made me think, it made me think the same way that a good book did at that age. It captivated okay. me like Narnia did, or like um, Redwall, or any of the other kind of children's fantasy things I was reading. And it was the first time I'd really been kind of intellectually engaged with a game. And then from then on, I, I became kind of totally fascinated by them. And it lasted all the way through my childhood and all the way through my teenage years. I remember I, my dad bet me when I was 14 that I'd grow out of it. Um, he paid up on that bet a few years ago, <laughs> to his credit. <laughs> after you became the editor of... Maybe, maybe this phase will pass still, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was weird because, I mean... Um, I started writing about games online uh, when I was 14, and okay. I had this really adorably bad website that I ran with with some other internet friends called madgamers.net. Mad Gamers, <laughs> what an excellent title. Um, and although it was like, you know, it was, it was your typical kind of early video game fan website, there was nothing particularly special about it, but we really loved it and we worked really hard on it. And yeah. um, we had an amazing forum community of probably about 50 or 60 people from, from across Europe and America who were just really... It was a fantastic online community. And uh, my poor parents, at 14, I'd hold kind of forum meets for, for mad gamers and all these random European teenagers would just turn up and pitch tents in our garden. And I'd be like, yeah, this is just my friend's mum, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
and the, you know, all these all these considerably older dudes would just sort of arrive from around the place. Uh, um, but yeah, so so Mad Gamers was like uh, that. That was my first my first foray, and then I actually did work experience on a games magazine when I was sixteen, and I got a job out of that. So excellent. Much to my parents' total delight, I quit school in Scotland and ran away to Bournemouth to uh, to become a games writer. Um, wow, you actually quit school to go do it. I did, yeah. I was, I was only 16. Um, I got most of my exams out of the way by that time anyway, because I'd sort of persuaded them to let me do them early. Uh, okay. But So I, I basically skipped the, I, I skipped the equivalent of sixth year, I guess, in England. Um, the last year of school I skipped. But I still had, thankfully, I had enough, uh, I had enough exams under my belt at that point. So I did, I worked as a staff writer on that magazine for a year. And then I went to university after that, so I didn't totally skip, didn't totally skip university, which I think would have would have devastated my parents if I had. <laughs> so while you were in university, then were you then contrib? Had you built up enough that by then you were contributing to places like Eurogamer yeah. and stuff like that? Yeah, all, all the way through university, I was Eurogamer's one of their um, kind of regular feature writers and reviewers, and uh, what else did I do? Yeah, I was I was writing the Observer's game pages at that point. I did. I just did whatever I could. Really, I was I was working my way through university, and instead of having a, you know, job at the local co-op, I was lucky enough to be writing about games to, to earn my way through. So I did work very hard. You know, I, I, I mentioned yeah. earlier I'm a bit of a workaholic, um, but I did I did kind of concurrently manage to keep up journalism, um, and also do do my degree at the same time. My degree was a modern languages degree, so I spent a year in Japan as part of it and also a good six seven months in berlin which i adored so yeah I, you lived you lived in nagoya here in japan didn't you i did yeah half, halfway down between kyoto and tokyo in the yeah inauspicious part of japan <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I really loved it over there and obviously it was it was you know I, I wrote a lot about games and game culture in japan while i was there and uh i miss it actually this is the first year i've not been to japan since 2008 this year and, uh, where, where do, do you do you go back to like Nagoya and stuff or usually um, if there's a work trip like usually someone's making something in Tokyo so yeah I can, I usually can get over there that way and then I'll usually tack on a few extra days and go back to Nagoya for a little while or I'll you know head down to Kyoto I've still never been to Hokkaido or any of the slightly more far-flung places in Japan, oh, so I still love Hokkaido. Hokkaido is basically like going to another country for me I live in Kagawa oh, right. and that is that is Hokkaido is basically another country. It's so it's so far away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would, I would love to but, go there. I'd love to go to the South Islands as well, like tropical Japan. That sounds fascinating. To Okinawa and places like that. Yeah, exactly. Especially after playing Pokemon Sun and Moon, because they yeah. are incredibly inspired by both Hawaii and those tropical islands uh, of Japan. Yeah, I'd nice to piece things together. That, <laughs> <laughs> well, Kaiser, it's in a we're going to sort of talk about those eight games and stuff, but before I, before we do, I just wanted to know a little bit more about now you've sort of been the boss for a while uh-huh. uh, after all those years of sort of contributing stuff. How have you found it being an editor compared to being a writer where maybe you can sort of be a bit more creative and play games and <laughs> write about them, really get involved in that. But now you have to manage so many different things and maybe there's less time of that creative freedom with your writing and stuff how are you finding that yeah there, there is definitely a sort of self-indulgent point when you're especially if you're a freelancer 
where you can kind of spend ages on things, you know? You yeah. Can, you can write things, you can spend a week writing something. I mean, if you don't need the money, that's the thing. Of course, if you need more money, then you're writing five or six things. <laughs> um, but there, there is a kind of... But the thing is, I think that uh, over time, I became I became very fast. I'm, just, I'm a very fast writer now. Um, I suppose just because I've spent so long doing it. And uh, yeah. as a result, I don't I don't write all that much less than I used to, but I have to select things more carefully because I, I can't play a 60-hour game, you know, for work. Yeah. Because uh, that would be all of my free time. And uh, I've also, I've, I've gotten quite a lot better at sectioning off my work time from my free time because if you work in something that's your passion, um, which journalism and video games both are for me, then it's very easy to spend literally your whole life just working at it. Which, it's it's hard to stop. Yeah, I mean, that's it, for sure. it has it has its advantages because um, on the one hand, you, that's how you get good. You know, you, no one gets good at anything without working really, really hard at it. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm about to start a family now, and uh, making time for for your family and for your for your partner and for your friends is very, very important as well. So, you, I, I find, I felt there was a certain point at which I decided I had to kind of really section off time where where you know my my job wasn't a part of my my day um so i've gotten better at that definitely but the thing the thing is it's a very interesting time for journalism in general right now what with all the things that are going on in the world and i'm, I'm very passionate about the role of of media and the role of um criticism in our in our cultural lives and our political lives as well and obviously yeah. what we do what we do at kotaku and what we do at any games outlet that i've ever worked at is not it's not vital journalism let's be honest but we do take it seriously i take it very seriously and um, I like to kind of bring the values of accuracy and editorial rigor and uh, and um, invest in time and effort and fact checking and all these all these kind of very important journalistic values. I like to bring that to, to what we do as an editor, um, to what we do at Kotaku UK. Um, and thankfully, it's, it's an outlet, you know, under Gawker and now under Univision, it's an outlet that really believes in that. And all the other former Gawker properties, Gizmodos, Jezebel's, Deadspins, they all also very much hold those those values dear so it's, it's a job i love because it allows me to combine the kind of the fun stuff video game stuff with the sort of editorial rigor that i think is, is sort of lacking <laughs> from and this isn't just the games thing it's lacking from most online media right now because the emphasis is on getting things up getting them out fast search engine optimization there's definitely a sort of clash of interest well depending on who who it is but obviously the internet is all about fast almost kind of like fast food media in a sense where it has to be fast and quick and you have you you get left behind if you don't do that but then also there are lots of people like yourself who want to have that accuracy and take time and create pieces that are worthwhile to read and that that sort of thing so there is that sort of clash of interests almost and you know it's not it's not an either or necessarily you know kotaku does a lot of quick fire posts obviously um and something like uh, like buzzfeed does a combination of kind of quick fire, slightly you know humorous or you know otherwise unserious postings, and they also do you know big proper news with their news yeah. faction. So on a, on a much tinier scale, that's what um, I like to think that we try and do at Kotaku is we we, we we cover things, we get things up, we find cool shit on the internet, we do throwaway posts, but we also do the kind of long form or kind of more researched journalism that. People also want to read. You know, people don't want one yeah. or the other of those things. They kind of, you know, people need both, or people desire both in their in their media diet. So, um, but you know, what one one of the problems that we have in the games media is because of the because of the money situation, 
like I think it's no secret to anyone that games journalism is not well paid, unless you're you know, <laughs> one of about six people in the world, including maybe Jeff Keighley. <laughs> um, but yeah, the uh, the result of that is that you get a very fast turnover. So you get a lot of people who are maybe 20, 22, who come in, work enthusiastically for four or five years, and then have to find a job that allows them more time and more money for other things. And as a result, you don't actually have very many people who've been doing this as long as I have for 10 or 11 years. There's very few who, who stick it out that long. Um, and that's no commentary on people who don't, because there's many, many good reasons. And there's no problem with, with doing other things with your life. Um, and I feel very fortunate that I've been able to stick, to stick at this for this long. And I still enjoy doing it, you know? I think yeah. uh, people often get to a stage where they, they just get a bit worn out, a bit burnt out on the whole thing. And that's thankfully not happened to me yet. Um, but yeah, there's definitely some that, baggage. Yeah. There's definitely some baggage that comes with being a games writer, especially these days, and especially if you are unfortunately a woman, yeah. which is a horrible thing to say. Um, but yeah, you should you are, just you still be more... having that positive thought and still loving it, which is which is amazing to hear. You've, you've kind of got to find the things that make you excited. And uh, the thing is, I'm, I'm not excited about game reviews at the moment, for instance, because I, you know, IGN, I very much did big game reviews. That was kind of my thing. Yeah, and after three years of that, I just felt, felt like doing something new. And the thing is, thankfully, journalism is kind of a broad enough church that you can do new things. And now I get a, lot, a big kick out of managing, um, managing reporting projects and out of editing, and uh, and also out of you know my own work as well. But I get I get a lot of I get a lot of satisfaction out of guiding the site, which I'm not doing at the moment, obviously, because I'm off for a year. <laughs> yes, f- former former Final Games guest, Mister Richard Stanton, is taking charge indeed very chuffed about that i think it'll be great um, <laughs> he is an excellent person um, i just i had to get another scottish souls addict really that was the, the criteria <laughs> it did it did feel like a, just a male female swap almost <laughs> yeah um but yeah the, so because you have so few kind of veterans you do have a sort of quality issue sometimes i think in the games media because and it's not anyone's fault it's just that people are young and inexperienced and so you have this situation where you just have a, an endless succession of young and inexperienced people. Um, and as a result, you don't get the kind of depth, necessarily, that you do when you read film criticism from a critic who's been doing it for 20 years. Or yeah. when you read a restaurant review by A.A. Gill. You, know, you just don't get the same kind of depth from a lot of games writing. So I'm hoping that it, it that in a few more years there'll be more people who you know can can make it work for longer and keep it keep it a good a viable career for longer so that we get this kind of these um, elder states people as it were of, of games criticism <laughs> so I think it'll benefit massively from that. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to ask you about the Kotaku thing was uh, sort of how much. Do you work with the US side of Kotaku? Is it almost like two separate? Because I know you're not quite owned by the same people, yeah. but you're still under that same name. Do you work kind of hand in hand together or is it almost like two separate teams, almost like franchises almost? Is it kind of like that? It's kind of a mix. Um, at IGN, um, where I was UK games editor, the it was, it was one global editorial team. And okay. So all of the sites looked the same and had approximately the same stuff on them. Um, so the, for instance, if, if the Americans wrote something, it would automatically appear on the UK site with no additions or changes. Um, so yeah. things like spellings would be different, stuff like that. Anyway, so it was one unified editorial team, um, and everybody worked as as one across the time zones. Kotaku is different. We're, we're a licensed version of Kotaku. So we have 
independence if we wanted, but we also work very closely with, with, the, with the states. So we don't do our own reviews of things. Um, most of the, like, 75% of the things that you see in Kentucky UK are the same as what you'd see in Kentucky US, but with British spellings in it. Um, <laughs> those, those Zs, get, the, get those Zs out. Quite, but we, we, we have editorial <laughs> control over. So if there are things that come through from the US that are not relevant um, or that aren't about, you know, if it's about Madden or something, um, then we have, we have control over sort of what prominence we give that stuff and whether we publish it at all. Um, okay. Which which is really good actually. It's nice. It's a good mix because the the US team is is fantastic. There's a lot of incredibly talented people um, working with Kotaku, and you know having daily contact with them is amazing. Um, but also we have just that little bit of editorial distance, so that when we need to buckle down and work on something by ourselves, we can um, without being no demands are made on us from the states. It's just yeah. Uh, so it's, it's really good. it's actually ideal for me. I really like it because it's a. Um, it's a, it's a good level of editorial independence, and I uh, there's no there's no one micromanaging what we do. Which That's is, always good. It is really good. It's, I hate being micromanaged. <laughs> I can't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound good because I had Jason on a few weeks ago, and oh, he was sort of talking. Um, didn't not so much about that, but how things work at Kotaku and stuff. And I imagine there's probably some differences between how the US works and how you run the UK side of things. But that's good to hear that you don't get micromanaged too much because <laughs> no no one really likes that. No, no one, one wants to be micromanaged, especially when you you're meant to be in control a little bit it's very difficult yeah the, the um, fact is as well across across the us and the uk there, there are differing um gaming tastes and we have different access to different kinds of developer um, yeah i mean here like we, we we talk to european and british developers a lot the americans talk to us developers a lot so we are stronger together like there's more you get a more rounded picture um, it's that it's that sort of unity where they like S- Stephen might have all those uh, I don't know people he's built up over the years in the states and then you have all the people in Europe yeah, like, we've mean, got some incredible developers over here that yeah, maybe a good, a good the US side don't understand too much maybe <laughs> and uh, well it's just that they don't meet them do they because they're the other end of the world um, that's true but a, a good example for instance like we broke together um, the Xbox Scorpio story this year that was me and yeah. Jason, both of us together, using our sources at other ends of the world to kind of collaborate the story. You know, we, we wouldn't have been able to verify that story alone, either of us, um, at least not as quickly. So working together, we were able to you know, get that story out, and it was a better story for it. And that, that, that happens quite often. It's really good. Excellent. Well, less about games media then and more about you personally then because we're going to start talking about your eight games that you've chosen today and it is an excellent list and um i think there's going to be no surprises to the first game that you've chosen on this list because you wrote a book about it um that came out this year and yes with my uh my very talented pal jason killingsworth um who is my co-author he used to work for edge magazine now works for riot games Excellent. Well, we're going to listen to some music from this first game then, and anyone who's read the book will definitely know what game's coming up. So why don't we listen to some music and jump into Keza's final games.
So kicking off your list then, Keza, is the pinnacle of action RPGs in my eyes. One of the best games probably to ever have been made, uh, definitely in the past 10 years. Released all the way back in 2011 now, which is incredible to think it came out the same year Skyrim did. Um, that It seems just still so fresh, even though we've had almost five games in that kind of series. Um, released all the way back in Japan in September of 2011 for the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. Um, this game is developed by the excellent team at From Software and directed by uh, Miyazaki Hidetaka. Uh, published by Namco Bandai over here. It's, of course, the one and only Dark Souls. Kaza, please tell me why the first game you're taking with you is Dark Souls. It's kind of an obvious one, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> you well, there's a pretty much for this choice. You could just read uh, like excerpts out of your book, <laughs> and I think that would that would cover it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the book. I thought that uh, writing a book about Dark Souls would close the book, as it were, on my obsession with Dark Souls. After all these years, it totally hasn't. Like, just in, fueled it. <laughs> yeah, in, in no way has it has it has it in any way. It, and if, if anything, it's enriched my my obsession with this game. Um, Dark Souls is, is very. I've got a very um, personal history with with the Souls games, and sometimes you're really lucky, and you happen to have significant personal history with games that are also just completely amazing. Um, and so, Demon Souls, Demon Souls, which was Dark Souls' predecessor, came out in Japan while I was living there, and no okay. one, no one knew anything about it. I didn't know anything about it. And yeah. I had played the Kingsfield games, which were by From Software, same developer, on the PlayStation 2. I had a real obsession with weird-ass Japanese PS2 games. And so I ended up playing... I didn't play three of them because they were broken as heck. But the, the, the Kingsfield games were these weird, scary, uh, very, very difficult, inexplicable, dark kind of action fantasy RPGs for the original PlayStation and the PlayStation 2. And yeah. they, they were very broken and they didn't work properly, but there was something about them that was interesting. So when um, I was kind of browsing around to the same, the same developer, I think a friend of mine had turned me on to the fact that From Software had, had done a, a PlayStation 3 dark RPG and it was coming out soon. It was called Demon's Souls. Yeah. And I thought, cool, well, maybe this will be a kind of modern Kingsfield. Let's see. So I picked it up from a Japanese game store in Nagoya in the Osu shopping district and I bought it. I took it home and. I couldn't quite believe what was in my hands. Like after playing it for a few hours, and just there's that there's that moment with every Souls game where, where people start playing it and they're like, "What the hell is this? How are you supposed to even like what is happening?" <laughs> and um, <laughs> with Demon Souls, that was of course even more pronounced because it wasn't it wasn't a game anyone else was playing, and I was trying to play it in Japanese as well, which was stupid. Um, and but I, I got there, I got over the wall, um, and. It was just one of the most incredible things I'd ever ever played, and uh, the the ambiance it's just sinking into into that kind of it was like I, I think I described it at the time not very sensitively it was like being in love with a psychopath, but it, it felt yeah, like it yeah. felt like that at the time. <laughs> I was I was you know you you kind of it's it's and it's the same it's the same essential appeal as with all the Souls games, in that it's about you triumphing against things that seemed impossible at first, and. Uh, you know, that's not the only thing that's amazing about Souls. There's many things, and I could go on for hours and I won't. But the, the, the main kind of hook for me on Demon Souls was just this, the fact that it seems so impenetrable and so impossible, and, and you kind of eke your way through it, and, and the, the sense of reward 
for, for making even the tiniest bit of progress was almost enough to make him burst into tears. Yeah, it's it's really funny you say this, actually, because I think I've said this on the show before, but uh, not to toot my own home, but my experience was very similar to yours really? in that I, I, didn't, I didn't buy it in Japan, but a friend of mine bought it on a whim. I don't know why he... Because he... We, as university students, we were buying weird Japanese games all the time. Of course, yeah. We were fascinated by that stuff. Um, a friend of mine bought it and no one was talking about it. There was nothing about it on the internet. It was just this random game that we found. Uh, it looks cool. It's Japanese RPG. Let's give it a go. Um, so he bought it and he played through it and he loved it. And he gave it to me and he was like, try this. And I played it, played the first level. I was like, how the fuck this is awful how the fuck do i get anywhere so i went back to his house and i was like how do i do this this is awful how why is this good and then we sat down and we played it together and there was three of us and we just played all the way through it on a weekend wow. all the way to the end and it was just amazing and it was so annoying because i was writing about games at that time on a sort of amateur level but I wanted to tell everyone about this brand new game that because no, there was nothing. You was you were so right. There was absolutely was nothing, nothing about Demon Souls. I like my, my I think I'm, I'm fairly sure of this. I re- my review was the first one in English. I think so. I, it, was, it was a Eurogamer review. Yeah, it was it was definitely before any of the other big outlets. There may have been a fan site somewhere that had something on it before, but to my knowledge, it was the first English language review of the Souls game. And and um, it was funny because. I don't know what happened between Demon Souls and Dark Souls because I don't remember anyone even talking about it at all up until Dark Souls. Yeah. So when Dark Souls came out, I was really excited about it. So I, I purchased the special edition, but then all of a sudden everyone was talking about Dark Souls and There's, I had no idea yeah, what it was, it was, changed. Well, I mean, partly, I think, without wanting to take too much credit, I think partly the coverage that, you know, Souls, um, that Souls converts were doing of demons and of dark before it came out sort of forced people to pay attention um certainly at ign i had managed to persuade the company to do a 24-hour live stream of dark souls <laughs> it was the first ever ign live stream uh, i think and um it was certainly the first one that length and we did we did 20 uh, basically this is this unknown game you know no one no one gave a shit about dark souls and I managed to persuade them to fly me to San Francisco to sit in a room for a full 24 hours with a bunch of other people <laughs> and, and you know, play through it on camera. And we, we only got as far because, oh, the, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the space between Demons and Dark. I mean, sometimes if you're working in games media, you're, you're very lucky to be a small part of the game's story. And uh, yes. the, Demons and Dark was that for me. Like, Dark Souls wouldn't have existed if Demon Souls hadn't made it out of Japan and got this kind of amazing groundswell of support and sold so well on import, you know, Demon Souls eventually made its way across the world. It made its way to America. It made its way to Europe. That wouldn't have happened without the press. It wouldn't have happened without the fans. And, um, you know, it's rare that you really do make a difference as as a games writer in, in, in somebody's fortunes in that way. And, you know, uh, those of us who bought and played Demon Souls, you know, whether as fans or as, or as journalists, th- those of us who, who tooted the horn for that game really did make a difference. And we saw the franchise that Dark Souls has become wouldn't exist if that, if that hadn't happened. So it's a very special game for me on that level. Well, considering where the Souls series is now, which is like almost this huge worldwide phenomenon, like considering the type of game that it is as well. Yeah. Um, that's ama- that's incredible to hear. That must be it. Must be so special sometimes to hear like p- 
people going on about souls and you're kind of like thinking in the back of your brain like oh I, I kind of made that happen you're only ever the tiniest part but you're nonetheless a part you know of, of that process yeah and, um, so for me like, it's funny it was just yeah. so rewarding to see that everyone else loved it too you know when it when it came out especially when dark souls came out in america um and everybody was like holy shit this is amazing i was like yes yes it is, <laughs> this is. i knew it i was so right i'm not insane <laughs> this is this game is so good yeah that was definitely it, a factor the i'm not insane factor that was that was quite something but yeah the i mean the um i was so excited about dark souls obviously and um you know, at the time when Dark Souls was in development, Hidetaka Miyazaki, who's now head of From Software, he's now president. But at the time, he was just this like super, super like nerdy developer who'd essentially been a coder who just decided to take on Demon Souls because Demon Souls was floundering at the company, and so Miyazaki kind of got given it almost to sort of fix it because yeah. you know what's the worst that can happen? It was already broken. It already wasn't working as a project. So he kind of took it over and turned it into, you know, that kind of Miyazaki Souls style style game. And um, then when Dark Souls was coming out, there was, there was a bit of buzz, but he was still very much like out of the spotlight. The first time I met Miyazaki was in 2010, 2010 maybe 2011, um, before Souls came out anyway. And um, I spoke to him for an hour and a half and he looked me in the eye once in that entire time. And he was very much a sort of look at the carpet kind of guy, very shy. And um, these days, when you look at Miyazaki, you know, smart blazer, company president. It was, it's, it's funny because I was watching the Golden Joysticks the other day and Dark Souls 3 won, I think it was Game of the Year, I think. And uh, it was like, and here to collect the award is Miyazaki. I was like, Miyazaki's there? Oh, like, there? He, he was looking all smart oh and God, kind of like a rock star. I was like, oh, okay. That's definitely how he may feel these days, I think. He's honestly, like, I mean, if, if I were him, I'd feel over the moon. You know, my, my weird little games become this this huge deal. And I'm talking to him now, you know, his, he can't quite believe it. <laughs> How did you, has he, well, he obviously probably knows about the book and stuff. Yeah. Um, how did it? How does he feel about the book? Is he? Does it excite him that there's being there's books being written about something <laughs> he created and he made? I, I imagine for him that's incredibly exciting. He was he was very excited about the book. Um, the thing was, we uh, when we were writing it originally, we were trying to go through Namco Bandai for kind of access to things, and because okay, Namco yeah. Bandai is a giant multinational company, it was just so difficult. Honestly, it was so hard. So we ended up just going to Miyazaki Direct because I had his email address from when I'd spoken to him in 2010, 2011. So I was just like, hey, uh, in my crap Japanese, like, uh, hello, we're doing this book. Would you mind helping us with an interview? And he was well into it. Uh, and, you know, we, we had also the, the his translator, who's a guy called Ryan, um, who translated Demon Souls and is still the kind of head translator for Frog Nation, which does the, um, the Souls games and many others. Uh, yeah. So he, he ended up helping us out loads with, with access to Miyazaki and stuff. And, and he's also a very interesting person to talk to himself about about the Souls game. So we've got like a whole chapter about about him. <laughs> and then, um you know, a lot of the book is made up of, um, well, not a lot, like probably a quarter of the book is made up of um, the story of its development and of its creators. And then the rest of the book is a combination of its players and stories and lore and other things yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, we had, because me, me and the, the other person I was writing, my co-author, Jason Killingsworth, he did the Edge cover story on Dark Souls. So, that on Dark Souls 2, actually. Um, and he was 
like me, one of the first people to play the original Dark Souls. So he and I, we both had this kind of year's worth of archive material about Souls and all these yeah. interviews with Miyazaki from way back when. And we were really kind of uniquely able, I think, to piece together the story of that game. I'm still Excellent. not talking about why I'd take it to a desert island. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. I think we were going to... I think my next question was going to be, obviously the Soul series means a lot to you and you've written about it strongly for many years now. Um, but why specifically Dark Souls then? Demon yeah. Souls is where you started, yeah. but obviously we've had Dark Souls 1, 2, 3, and also Bloodborne. Mm-hmm. Why specifically would you be taking Dark Souls with you then? Firstly, it would be a toss-up between Dark Souls and Bloodborne. It's a really hard decision. <laughs> Those are my two. Every time I think back to Bloodborne, I think that's probably one of my favorite games of all time. But then, how could how could I not take Dark Souls as well? Tough, as well? I think if I were alone on an island, Bloodborne would not be a very good game to play. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it really messes with your brain. Uh, I find Dark, I find I find Bloodborne uniquely disturbing, like in a good way. I find, it, it was just absolutely terrifying. It gave me proper like weird nightmares. <laughs> and uh dark souls by now because it's so familiarized to me i've played it many times and also you know written about it watched people play it watched streams so on like it's so familiarized to me that it's it still retains a bit of it still retains its mystery but it's not actively like a scary game to me anymore because um, dark souls is at times especially with the nervousness that comes to the gameplay dark souls in some areas is pretty freaky i um, think you could make a good argument for the souls games being survival horror there was certainly the survival element, that's for sure. Yeah. And you know, some of the, oh my god, I mean, some of the creatures, especially when you start to figure out what's going on, like, I mean, a good example for me is Ceaseless Discharge. Um, like, <laughs> that name. Firstly, just even just the name, what the hell. And <laughs> secondly, like, when you start to look into the lore and you discover that Ceaseless Discharge is essentially a son of a witch who is kind of covered in sores that erupt lava and is in constant pain all the time. And he's there because he's guarding the corpse of one of his sisters. And you kind of read that, when you read up on that or you discover it through in-game stuff, and you're just like, what the? That's messed up! That is really very <laughs> distressing. That's an origin story. And, and pretty much every single person and thing in Dark Souls is there for a reason. And the more you That's look the into beauty it, the of the series. Absolutely. so and, incredible. You know, the, the more you look into it, the more it gives you back. And that, that's why I'd take Dark Souls away, because I still haven't kind of plumbed the depths. After, after all these years, I feel like I still haven't had my fill of it. And uh, quite apart from the fact that it's just an amazing game to play. It's, I just think it's a, it's, it's a fantastic game to play. It's so adaptable. You can play it in so many different ways. There are so many little details in it that I notice every time pretty much every time I watch a stream of Dark Souls or I play it again myself there's some tiny thing I haven't noticed before and I feel like it's almost bottomless um, and the, it certainly seems it when you begin yeah <laughs> it's such an uh, such and an even after all this incredible time, task yeah so that's I mean it's it really is uh, for, for me it's, it's the peak of the series in terms of just how everything comes together so Demon Souls is the one that's like the real personally important one to me, but the one that's part of my my, my autobiography, if I had one, would be you know Demon Souls would be more important to it than Dark. But nonetheless, yeah. Dark Dark is a better game, and um, it's just it's just the perfect. It's, it's basically what Demon Souls wanted to be. You know, it's this perfect expression of this particular idea that Miyazaki had. Um, 
and I just I don't think it's been better. You know, I think the other Souls games are, are great as well, but they've not they didn't have quite the same. I want to say um, dignity as the first Dark Souls, the same sense of consequence, and as a result, I don't think I could I don't think I could be happy without Dark Souls in my life. You know, it's always been around yeah. for the last four years, four or five years, five years now. So isn't you. It? Yeah, yeah, it's been around for so long, and you've speak spoken to so many people who are sort of involved in the community, and because mm. Dark Souls community is just huge these days, full yes. of like YouTube videos exploring all of the lore and people writing you know retrospective pieces on why it means so much to them and all that kind of thing. Um, obviously, a a lot has come from Dark Souls, and we have you know people like Solaire and all these characters that people <laughs> adore and that kind of stuff. Um, do you have like a favorite part of Dark Souls or like a favorite character that just makes you sort of happy inside? Like, oh, there's so and so. Oh, that's such a hard question. I mean, I sort of obsessed with the story of Artorias and Sif. Um, the okay. I I find that one of the most kind of heart-wrenching stories in games. Um, and But I, I still want to say it's, it's my favourite because it's so sad. Um, but it's, it's the thing that springs to mind is the sort of is emblematic of, of the, the depths that Soul has. You know, as far as you're concerned, you're just killing this wolf. You know, when you first find that boss, you're just killing a big wolf with a sword in its mouth. Yeah. And then as you get further in and you get sucked into the Dark Souls rabbit hole, you know, you, you start to understand that the the wolf was guarding, you know, guarding the grave of his fallen, you know, buddy, his fallen master, and the connections between what what happens in the abyss. In Dark, I'm trying not to get too deep into Dark Souls here because I know it's completely boring to anybody who hasn't. <laughs> um, but the, the kind of thematic connection between what happens in the abyss and in the dark of Dark Souls. And then what the effects that has on the kind of fantasy world that the rest of the game is set in. I just find it so, um, just so exquisitely pitched. You know, it's, it's up there with any fantasy I've ever read about anything. In terms of, um, it's 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 complex without being complex for the sake of it. You know. Yeah. And it's it's just very touching. And I think probably my favorite bit of, of Dark Souls is is that area of a forest where you find Sith. Um, where you find everything else there as well in the Darkery Garden, and also I think, I think An Orlando, because Dark Souls for the first half of Dark Souls you're just burrowing deeper and deeper and deeper into the ground basically. Yeah. And you get to this point where you start to feel like you'll never see the sun again, and you know the further down you get, the more awful it gets, like Blight Town, which is just the worst place ever. <laughs> and the poison swamp and Kalag's domain and the spiders and it's just it's so grim. And then once you uh get taken off once you get through the Sen's Fortress Torture Palace and you just get flown off to An Orlando and suddenly you've just got this beautiful, like bathed in sunshine, you know, pale sunshine. It's it's it's, it's not it doesn't seem as dead as everything else and it's it's this incredible like the architecture is extraordinary. And it really is amazing. And then you can play the whole game like I did. You can play the whole game six times without ever finding out that it's all an illusion. And that's the, the kicker with Endorondo, is that it's all actually an illusion. And it's being maintained by you know, the secret boss who lives there. Yeah. 
And if you it's you incredible because some people sort of what I've read is like people like you've gone to hell and then you come up to heaven. Yeah, but and then, then heaven so is exactly. obviously not true. I know, uh, and it's it so exactly. Illusion. It's like you get lifted up to heaven, and then he's just like, actually though, <laughs> even you can't even have this. You can't have this. It's it's so perfect. And the thing is, I I I only found out while I was writing the book that that was even the case. That, you know, I believe he's called Dark Sun Gwyndolin, who lives there. So, of course, I had to go back and play it again to, to find him and to see for myself. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, honestly just just extraordinary. The, 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 I think Anna Rolando sums up a lot of what's amazing about Miyazaki's approach. You know, 90% of players would never have found out about Anna Rolando being alive. And also that you just that would have skipped what's... over it and just never known. That's almost the shame about Dark Souls that. So many people will play through it thinking that they've done it, that they finished it, that they know it. Yet there's so much that they might have missed or that they'll just never know that pieces some parts of the story together for them or will help them make sense. Uh, but it is that kind of obscure way that Dark Souls works. That's why it's bottomless. That's definitely why I take it with me. Like it's, it's, it's important to me personally, but it's just it's a game you could play forever and not get bored of. I really do think so. Excellent. Well, I think it's about time we move on to your next game now. Although... We obviously could talk about Dark Souls forever. I just said uh, that entire... my 19th podcast exclusively about Dark Souls. <laughs> <laughs> so much so we could probably fill a book. But, uh, <laughs> um, but I think we're going to change pace now. Uh, and we're going to talk about a game that's never appeared on this show before. So I'm very intrigued to hear about it. Um, I've only played it a few times. I've never really gotten deep into it. Um, because there were other rhythm games I was playing at the peak of uh, the rhythm fever hype in the sort of west i live in japan now so rhythm games are just my normal day-to-day thing here um but yeah it's gonna be excellent to hear about this so why don't we listen to some really good music from the soundtrack to this game and let's dive straight into it So, Keza, before we jump into your next game, we have to talk a little bit about where we're sending you to. Because it it isn't just a deserted place. It's a place from video games. Uh, We want you to be comfortable, especially you now. We want you to be comfortable. Um, (laughs) I feel so terrible for sending you to this horrible place. Um, But it's only horrible if you choose it to be, because you get the choice. So it has to be from video games. There there is going to be nobody there. You are going to be stranded alone. Um, but is there a place in video games that that it always sticks in your mind? Like, oh, I'd like to go there, or maybe I wouldn't mind living there. Is there I'm, somewhere that has always been stuck in your brain? I am staring at the map of it right now. Excellent. And it's the the um I want to call it Outset Island, the Starter Island of Wind Waker. 
Outside Island, yeah. yes. I think it's called Outside Island. It is indeed. Yeah. Good, excellent. Yes, that's it. That's that's the island I picture. That, that, be- that beautiful, that beautiful island. <laughs> oh, it's gorgeous. It really is. Even without all the, the people thing- on it. Even without, well, there, how many people are on that island? Like well, exactly, like six. Ten, ten <laughs> the, or, at the most. Um, but also, you'd have to have the excellent music playing in the background. That's pretty much Just... why. Yeah, it was a toss-up between that and Dragon Roost Island, because <laughs> that's got the best music. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, every time I think of Wind Waker, that music is what immediately hits me. I've never... It's funny because throughout gaming, we're always impressed by graphics at some point. Oh, man. And Ocarina of Time, the first time I played, that was incredible. The graphics changed so much from what I was playing on, like the Super Nintendo to then the N64. And then from then, seeing some PlayStation 2 games is incredible. But I don't remember ever being so amazed, especially considering the art style change was so dramatic. But I don't think ever... In my entire life, have I ever been so impressed by seeing Outside Island for the first time and how just incredible the colors were? Uh, just still to this day blows me away, especially if you're playing the HD version uh, of that game. So, Keza, we are sending you off to Outside Island, which I think is a wonderful place to go, really, especially to play all these wonderful games that you've chosen, too. So, the game we're going to talk about now. Um, as I said, it's a game I haven't really played too much of, but it's developed by Rhythm Masters uh, Harmonics, who are responsible also for the Rock Band games, um, published by Sony Entertainment. It released for the PlayStation 2 all the way back in March of 2003, a long time ago. Um, I think it recently had like a Kickstarter campaign for a brand new game for the PlayStation 3 and the PlayStation 4, and was released earlier this year. Um Keza, this is Amplitude. Yes, right. The original. Which not quite the original. The original. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, Frequency which is the one you're using? The original. But yes. Okay. Keza, why is Amplitude going with you? So Amplitude, for those who don't know it, is a, um, what you'd now call EDM, <laughs> uh, rhythm game from 2002. Uh, Harmonix made it for PlayStation 2. It sold about 2,000 copies in the UK. No one Oh my it. God. Uh, and it is one of my favourite games ever. It is uh, the first game that made me really fall in love with rhythm action. Rhythm action games are a big deal for me. I love them. Um, I first got into rhythm games when I was a teenager, and basically most of my 15th year of life was just sitting with Amplitude, a special controller that I bought specifically for it. Um, (laughs) Because you you need to use the L1 and the R1 and R2 buttons, and they need to be perfect, they can't be sticky, they can't be stiff, they have to be this perfect. So I had this one controller that was only for amplitude because all my other controllers were, you know, passed around and, you know, used and abused. But this one amplitude, pristine amplitude controller, was a perfect <laughs> controller for it. You, you, uh, so yeah, most of my 15th year of life was spent sitting with amplitude and just an enormous bag of drugs. And uh, I've rarely had more fun in my life than I did <laughs> at that point. And um, so it's a very, very trippy. Uh, game, you're you're a little spaceship, and you have there's, there's three buttons, and you basically play the music track by track. So you go kind of from drums to vocal to so on. You're matching the different beats. And yeah. the genius of that game uh, is that it kind of taps into this very primal brain language. A lot of its visual language is like long corridors 
if you imagine a long, long corridor that kind of tapers off. Lots of bright colours, expanding and contracting geometric shapes. It's basically the kind of stuff that you see when you close your eyes and you're tripping. Um, or when you're just really tired. <laughs> if you're incredibly tired, you close your eyes and your brain just starts making shapes. Um, like an odd visuals that you get. Uh, and so it speaks this kind of brain language that just makes it intensely pleasurable to play, especially if you're very good at it, which I became. Um, I'm still top top 1,000 in the world, top 600 in the world as of January, but I've not played it much since January. Um, and the kind of... Co- the the, uh, the synthesis that you reach with your reflexes and your and what's going on on the screen and the music is it, it's, it's incomparable. Some people get it from like Ikaruga or from other vertical shooters. I get it from yeah. Amplitude. It's that proper like flow bliss. Um, and I've always got it from Amplitude. The new the new Amplitude on PS4 is probably my most played game of this year. I've probably played it for about 100 hours. Um, wow. Yeah, I can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, tell I, me, I, tell me then, what what's the difference between the two? Then why why not take the latest one compared to the old one? Is the are the sound is the soundtrack better on the old one? Better, different. Uh, okay, the new one doesn't have any licensed music in it because that would be too expensive. Ah uh, yes, harmonics so, are not financially as powerful as they once were. No, I mean um, a lot of their money they made off rock band and guitar hero, which should have been loads of money, but a lot of it went to their owners in TV. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, they went independent again recently with Rock Band 4 and that hasn't done as well as it should have. So they, they're not as rich as they should be. If you think Harmonix is one of these mega rich companies because of Guitar Hero, they're, they're sadly not. Um, and unfortunately, they make such excellent rhythm games as well on the band. side, like Amplitude, but they don't sell very well. Well, they, they should have been mega rich off Guitar Hero. It's ridiculous. Um, but then obviously Guitar Hero was sold to Activision and Activision got really rich off it. Um, so in the meantime... Basically, I think Harmonics really lost out there. And then EA slash MTV got rich off Rock Band. So they're, they're still this scrappy independent developer, even off from these two massive mega hit games. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Amplitude was, I mean, really, what, really nobody played it. Uh, but those who did play it loved it to pieces. So yeah, the difference is being like the, the older one has a kind of a soundtrack from around that time, from around 2002, with it's got Garbage, it's got Cherry Licks by Garbage, it's got a bit of weird Bowie. Got, Pepper uh, Roach, Slipknot. Yeah, yeah it's, exactly. <laughs> so that, that's kind of a time that I, that I fondly remember. And so I think probably, and you know, functionally, gameplay-wise, they're the same. Like, they're exactly the same. Um, so okay. Yeah, I'd go with the older one. I mean, the also the older one had online <laughs> online play at the time. Uh, which the new one were, you, were you, like, plugging it in and Oh, my playing? God, it was ridiculous. Like, the, you know, really? I don't even know if... I'm trying to remember if the online play was even officially supported. I'm sure it must have been. Um, but, you know, you had to go through these insane... Like, that that early generation of online games consoles just did not work at all. You get it to work, like, one in five times. Um, but, yeah, it was... It was uh, I mean, the, the, the new Amplitude is, is much prettier. I mean, it's HD and everything. Uh, but, yeah. you know, functionally, it's the same. It's the same. It gives me the same buzz. So I'd go with the older one. What is it then that makes this game? Have you, do you play a lot of rhythm games in general, or was it just yes. like this sort of standout game? I play. I've played every rhythm game, I think, or at least up until the ones that were released up until about two thousand eight or nine. So I played pop and music. I played Guitar Hero. I played um, a lot of. Um, oh come on! 
I'm having a total brain blank on the on the DJ game that's incredibly popular in Japan. Uh, DJ Hero here in Japan, it's it's, no, it's 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 been it's been a thing forever. It's like one of the first rhythm action games. It's still going. Oh, oh I can't remember. There it's one is of the first ever so games. many. What is it? Oh, that's annoying. Can I look that up? Yes. <laughs> Pause for a second. It's gonna it's gonna bother me massively if I if I don't figure out what that was. <laughs> it's like Beat Mania or something, isn't it? It's something. What is it? I think it's Beat Mania, that was, and it was made by Konami. Oh, no, it is it was, Beat Mania. Uh, yeah, it's totally just Beat Mania. Yeah. I was thinking that was the genre name, but it's that as well. Uh, cool, anyway, and sorry. I, gonna watching people play that game is incredible. If you ever come to Japan, go to an arcade, go to the rhythm section, just watch people play rhythm games here in Japan. They are literally like robots. There it's, was a girl uh, who used to play in my local arcade in Nagoya. Um who was extraordinarily good at Beatmania. Like, ludicrously. I, I didn't Ugh. know how she was doing it. Um, but she used to play on when I used to watch her. I used to literally go to the arcade just to watch this particular person play. <laughs> um, she, not by myself. Lots of other people were watching. I feel the need to point out. It wasn't creepy. <laughs> um, but she she was just freaking amazing at Beatmania. And um, watching her was an absolute pleasure. I became obsessed um, in Japan with this game called U-Beat. Which is you beat? Yeah, it's like a it's a glowing cube with sixteen squares on it. Ah, yeah. So many people still play that game. Yep. Every so time I go back to Japan, I'm pleased to see that people still play it, and I, I got pretty good at that. Um, and yeah, I mean that that's a really good one because you can play it like a kind of demented octopus because <laughs> you have to touch all the different like sixteen squares. So you have to kind of move, and it's very kinetic. And so you yeah. get you get a lot of the Japanese dudes stand there and kind of play it with their fingers and don't move at all. But I would like fully go for it. I don't know. Fun. I don't know when the last time you came to Japan and played in an arcade. Uh, I imagine every time you come to Japan now, you're probably rather busy. Um, the arcade, but, the arcades made me sad now. They used to be so much better. <laughs> yes, then definitely not in their prime right now. Yeah. Uh, too many UFO catches. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but there is a rhythm game out now in Japan that I just cannot stop playing. It's called Chuntium. Or Chuntham. And it's it's like a you have like a synth keyboard that doesn't have any keys, but it has like a uh, a touch sort of board that you sort of slide your fingers across and you can use it like a keyboard because it has individual sections that are like piano keys. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially like Guitar Hero, but you sort of slide your hands back and forth almost like a weird like if you're like visualizing stuff and I just cannot stop playing it. It's so good. Next yeah, time you come fun. to Japan, if you have time, find Chantium. It's so good. It's awesome. Yeah, I, I love it. The cannot last, stop playing. The last arcade game I played in Japan, the last new one was Sound Voltex. Sound Vortex. Voltex yeah, with an L, obviously. Voltex, okay. <laughs> I think that um, came out, I don't know when it came out. The last time I was in Japan, it was new to me. Um, Sound but it was vortex. Diff- different buttons and knobs and lots of kind of weird. Oh right, yeah, I'm looking at a picture of it now. Yeah, it, yeah, I've seen people. It's funny because new rhythm games pop up all the time, and it, some of them are so crazy looking. Like there's one I played recently where you had to literally move like this big giant, uh, oh god, giant knob. <laughs> it's just <laughs> a big knob, <laughs> and it's like a like a volume control, but it's huge, and you have to literally grip it with your hands, and then you move it up and down or left and right, and all in time while also like sort of swaying your body to move almost like a ski. That's like amazing. You're skiing. 
Yeah, it's amusing, but it's incredibly hard to control and um, not so fun once you get really tired. <laughs> but yeah, Japan is bringing out crazy, crazy music games all the time. I recently played one that was like a two-player where you have to cross over your hands and you have to like touch things corresponding with your player's color. So you have to like work together. It's like a rhythm game. You work together and you both miss, plug miss, headphones I really in. I miss those arcades. It's, it's a shame that they have dwindled. Like, I mean, I was in Japan in 2008 originally. And even then, obviously, everyone was like, oh, the arcades aren't what they used to be. But then the difference between yeah. then and now is so huge. It's massive. It's a real Still shame. big business because yeah. there are arcades everywhere, but not the not the quality yeah, the quality the has dwindled i used to have this like ironclad good night out in tokyo that i take people who visited on um you know if people were of tokyo game show or whatever i'd be like right i got this we're going on this ironclad great night out and uh, it involved a special hidden curricular arcade um curricular being the mad photo booths that you sometimes see in japan uh, yeah and uh then um, there's this fantastic old arcade that was on the second floor of somewhere in Shibuya. Uh, and then Tori Kizuku, which is a cheap izakaya, where you can get good beer and, well, cheap beer and cheap food, and it's nice. And, you know, then karaoke, that was basically the, 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 the gold standard night out. And in about 2012, all three of the places had shut. And I was like, no, why can't everything <laughs> stay the same forever? <laughs> that that does sound like if you ever wanted to know what a japanese night out is especially if you're listening in the u.s and uk which is you probably go out for a few beers and you go to a nightclub or whatever in japan you hit the arcades you go to an izakaya and then you go to karaoke and that is like the same every time you know, every going time. out in japan is so much better though i really do feel like so it. much better because the only option you have i mean here i live in the south of england now and the only option you really have is let's go to a pub because yep, nobody wants go to, to the go pub. to one of the shit clubs in the seaside. Nobody wants to go there. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so in Japan, like everything's open late. Like you can go shopping up until like ten o'clock. You can still go just have a little wander around the shops if you're if you're meeting someone. Um, the izakayas are like they're like pubs, but they have interesting food. Obviously. Um, sometimes I get annoyed with izakayas because sometimes I do miss. I do miss wanting to go to a pub. Oh, like yeah. if I wanted to go watch the football on a Sunday, whereas, uh, and there are very little, very few places in Japan where you can go and just have a beer. Like that's true. Yeah, you have are, to have your food. And it becomes you a big deal. You have to have your food it? And, it, and it becomes like this long, like an hour, two hours sort of talking with people. Sometimes you, ca- you can't just go for a, a quiet drink uh to sort of maybe read or something that that doesn't really That's exist true. in japan yeah i did miss pubs while i was there and of course now i'm not there <laughs> 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 I miss now you there, miss but... izakayas <laughs> yeah and you know, things like just weird stuff like the arcades late night bowling and stuff like that it was all just the, the night time in japan always seemed like this amazing sort of forest of opportunity to me and weird Where's, shit kept happening all the time it's it's just literally the only time Japanese people can do anything because they work from like seven in the morning till nine at night. Like everyone does it. So the only time Japanese people ever get to do anything is at night. So that's why it's crazy. If you, if you get on the, the thing is like Japanese nights out for me, probably because I was 20 years old, but they were always just big. They were big nights out. And you know, it that, would usually that is, culminate, that's true. it would usually culminate at like four or 5 a.m. coming out of some fourth floor snack bar that we randomly found ourselves in. <laughs> um, and uh, you know then going again back to the arcade for a bit and you know this is what like, rhythm action games are very you know they're very they, they've been a big part of my life that part of my life certainly 
Um, and when when the new Amplitude and the new rock band and everything came out last year, I was it was just Christmas for me. I was so happy about it. Um, having having Rhythm Games back was was great, and I've I've really enjoyed Rock Band Four. You know, I, I have a lot of fun. But the, the reason I take Amplitude over Rock Band Four is that Rock Band Four ain't so fun by yourself. <laughs> it's weird actually, because I sort of been thinking about it. I'm I love guitar, I love rock band, and being in the country of Rhythm Games. What amazed me is that they don't sell rock band or guitar no, hero. No, I had to. I had like, to get it. I had to get someone to post me guitar hero world you, tour while I was living. You literally there. have to import it, yeah. and importing the instruments is in- extremely expensive. So yeah, it's kind of off the cards. But the country of rhythm games just they, they do not sell it, and it, oh. it just blows my mind. Especially when it's you like, consider like how much better guitar hero is than guitar freaks, or than. I mean, I think again, it's, it's the cultural thing as well. The music. The music is the thing. Um, That's very true. Yeah, and, you know, and in Japan, the music—the music is just so, the musical culture is just so so different from our kind of scummy rock band culture. Um, <laughs> there are there are some elements of that, but in the mainstream, it's like DJ, electronica, hip hop type stuff. That's yeah, like Japan's main beef. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so rhythm games. I mean, we've gone off sort of in a tangent from what we were talking about, but. <laughs> It's a big part of why games like Amplitude and Rock Band and Guitar Hero uh, sort of exist because the West hasn't caught on to rhythm games maybe as much as Japan has. And Japan has brought out some crazy, crazy stuff like Parappa the Rapper and uh, Guitar Man and obviously Hatsune Miku and stuff like that. Yeah, Guitar. Love Finally, it. someone on this show who knows what Guitar Man is. It was, <laughs> that it was PlayStation nearly... 2 game is one of my favorite games ever. <laughs> it was nearly. It was nearly. Guitar Man over Amplitude. It was the choice between Wow, really? Yeah, I love it so, so much. And it's also, excellent. like Guitar Man, despite playing it obsessively for years, I never quite finished it on Master Mode. There was... It, get, it gets hard. The like, last like, level of it, I just couldn't ever quite do. Ever. Maybe I can do it now. Maybe that's a good thing I can do on maternity leave, is finally finish Master Mode <laughs> on, on a 15-year-old PS2 game. <laughs> It's such a great game. That game came out before Amplitude as well. It did, um, yes. It was, um, yeah. It was, it was a Koei game. Well, what I loved about Guitar Man as well is, like, in addition to the to the music, which is hilarious and great, it's just got that really cute, lovable story. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a music game that's a story, basically. It's a story told through songs. Whereas yeah. Amplitude is just pure, like, your conscious brain isn't engaged whatsoever with Amplitude. It's literally just reflexes, your eyes, your ears, the game, and you, you kind of sink into this almost, like, I don't know if it's superhuman or subhuman, one or the other. Res does this for me as well. When you really, really got the rhythm going in Res, you just forget who you are for a moment. And uh, I have definitely had that recently playing through Chuntham. Like, I just get into the zone. It's like the only rhythm game here in Japan that I can sort of keep up with Japanese people on. Like, I can play it on, like, master level. Nice. And, and I don't look like such a fooly bakagaijin sort of... <laughs> pissing around with games that are definitely out of my level but i do get into like this zone and sometimes i break the etiquette of if there's someone behind you you have to get off like you you get your go and then then they play and then you swap and you keep going sometimes i'll stick in more hundred yens than i should just to keep going (laughs) just because i'm in the zone and (laughs) people get really annoyed (laughs) (laughs) uh i love i really just come to sort of love 
rhythm games. Like it all started with sort of with Guitar Hero and I didn't kind of understand the genre too much of where it come from. And obviously we had DDR back in the day and then stuff like Guitar Man and Hatsune Miku and in most recent like the Persona uh dancing all night game which is oh, yeah. an excellent game that's such a great game oh, i bought too. that and not played it that's one of those ones i pre-ordered and it like arrived at the door and i was like oh yeah and then i forgot to play it I must, I must should, play it's it. it's really good I bet it's it really is. good it's really good it's the first game i bought when i came to japan because it wasn't out in the west i was like i'm gonna get that game <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but i think it's about time we move on then um and now we're changing pace all over again and we're changing genres again but we're going to talk about a game that we sort of already tiny tiny little bit uh spoken about already um so why don't we listen to absolutely excellent music from this next game and let's dive straight into it So, of course, we are shipping Keza off to Outer Island, and it would be fitting that we talk about the game that that level comes from. And we've already sort of spoken a little bit about our thoughts about this next game. Um, Incredibly positive, of course. So the next game that Keza has chosen is... It's up there as my favorite in the entire series. It's beautiful and excellent and it was developed by nintendo's top team the ead team and directed by obviously mr aonuma and uh produced by miyamoto and tezuka it released all the way back on the gamecube in 2003 and and just the time some people were maybe maybe a little confused by why it changed so much and there was i remember there was a big sort of backlash about the art style changing uh for this game of course we are talking about the legend of zelda Wind Waker. Keza, please tell me why you are taking Wind Waker. And are you taking the original or the HD version? I'm going to take the HD version. Um, that's perfectly understandable. That's, it's just, it's, 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 it's exquisite. So picking one Zelda was always going to be hard. Because yes. Zelda was, you know, the game that sort of got me into all this in the first place. And uh, I have my, my, my office now, I say my office, my tiny nook where I have my desk. Um, <laughs> I have maps. So it's decorated with maps. And the maps, some of them are from real places and some of them are from fictional places. And they're all places that mean something to me. Um, yeah. So I have a map of Kanto there. I've got a map of... Uh, Hi- I've got three maps of Hyrule. <laughs> I've got um, the Hyrule of Link to the Past. I've got the I've got a wood-etched map of the Hyrule of Ocarina of Time. And yeah. I have the really tattered map of all the islands of the Great Sea that came with my copy of Wind Waker. In 2003. Excellent. And so the reason I picked Wind Waker, it, it is, it's difficult to say what is your favorite Zelda, but it's certainly the one that means 
that I could play most, most now. Um, I love Ocarina of Time to pieces, um, but I've played it. I played it a lot, and I think I think I've come to the end of my kind of appreciation of it. You know, I don't think there's anything more I can get out of it. Whereas Wind Waker, it's just it's so exquisitely made. It really is perfect. You know, the the the, the way it looks, the way it feels. You know, it makes me smile. The uh, just sailing around by itself. The never I've never actually found traversal so blissful in a game as I did on the Great Sea with that little boat. And um, as much as I love riding around on the horse in Ocarina of Time, it's, it's, it's that, for me, like, pure relaxation, pure calm is just you know, the Great Sea theme and heading off into the blue and seeing what you find. That is just my, it's, it's absolutely my nirvana. I love it. It's funny you say, uh, going back to what you said initially about sort of playing Zelda and which one you could sort of play forever. It's funny because although Wind Waker for me is... I think it has the best music. I think it has the best design. I love Zelda in general, and all the other games are amazing, but there is something about the Wind Waker that I just I love. But it's also the game that I can't play anymore. Like, I have oh, played too yeah. much of it. And, it. and for me, I think, although it's such an incredible game, I think sometimes in replayability, that game is maybe... A little weaker compared to some of the other games. Oh yeah, like um, so certainly if, if you're talking about like best dungeons and stuff like that, it's not got them. I mean, it's got yeah, some no, amazing ones. Exactly. It's, it's not got the kind of you know, it's not it's not meaty. It's not like really, it's not a really meaty Zelda game. Um, and of course, there's the famous thing where apparently the last third of it just doesn't exist. Um, but it is <laughs> it's, it's the most fun game. It's the most it's the most uh, I find it the most pleasing Zelda game to exist in, if that makes sense. I can definitely see what you mean there, because yeah. just even starting, just even starting the game, playing through all of Outset Island, and then getting to the bit where you get on the boat to go to the prison, um, that's where I can stop because that gives me everything that I remember from the Wind Waker: the music, the art design, the the sea, just everything is encapsulated in that. I've never known to, I've never known a game to display how the rest of the game is going to work so well uh, or just give you a taste of what to expect so well within its like first hour, like its first level. Um, and even just, even just looking at Link, there's no face. You know, the, the amazing all of, all of his expressions. Yeah. It's just, it's got so much character. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's very pleasing. It's a very pleasing world to my eyes, to my ears, to my kind of soul. It's just, it's a very pleasing place to be. It's very calming. <laughs> As uh, someone who is also a Phantom Hourglass apologist, oh, me um, too, man. <laughs> All of the Souls I love this. He is he is the best link. He is he's my he's, he's my favorite. And the Ghost Zelda is really funny <laughs> as well. Yes, <laughs> and I even like Spirit Tracks. You know, I I really enjoyed Little Train. I thought it was great. <laughs> See, Spirit Tracks. I'm a little a little. I don't know. The train bored me a little too. Yeah, much. <laughs> I didn't finish Spirit Tracks. I just enjoyed it. It was it was funny. It was like I think Spirit Tracks may have come out the same year as Demon Souls, possibly or Dark Souls. I think it must have been Demon Souls. Whichever one it was. Like, I, like I think so. I think my two favorite games of that year were like the most opposite games you could possibly imagine. Like you know, <laughs> Demon Souls and Spirit Tracks. <laughs> so then, are you going to be comfortable playing The Wind Waker forever? Do you, is this more of a just turn it on, enjoy it for what it is, but maybe not so? Let's play through this 50, 60 yeah. times because yeah, this is. 
I think it's it's a place it's a place to exist for me that I that I really like. Um, and it's it's tough because like there are many other Zelda. I mean, all the Zelda games. I mean, if I was going on pure, what would I play four thousand times? I'd probably go with either Link to the Past or Link Between Worlds. Both of which. Yeah. Just really satisfying to actually play. Really good puzzles and stuff. And also the ability to sort of just play them in any order you want and sort of experiment yeah. a little bit more yeah. uh, compared you know to the other games. I think which... if, if Breath of the Wild comes out and is as good as it looks, it'll probably be Breath of the Wild I'd take with me to an island because it's got the the um, pleasing um, world of Wind Waker but also appears to be really solid on everything else as well. Yeah, experimental sort of RPG, yeah. allow you to do what you want, give you a bit more freedom. Whereas we have to admit, sort of the Zelda games between Ocarina of Time up until The Wind Waker um, were a lot more limiting, mm-hmm. telling the player where to go. Although they gave us that pseudo open world feel, do what you like, um, but essentially all you can do is mini games. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, I think the, the sea, the open sea, made me feel much more free um, than. I mean, it's funny, when you play Ocarina of Time now, Hyrule Field seems so small. Yeah, But it at does. the time, it was just like, you know, your mind Massive. was blown, you walked out of Kokiri Forest, and you could go, and you could go, you could, you know, the, the classic cliche, you could go to that mountain. Um, <laughs> but in it's funny because you, for me, it's always, you, you could look left, and you could go to Hylia Lake and go fishing, or you can go straight, and you can just go to the Hyrule Castle and Castle Town and all that sort of stuff. Oh, you could go right, and you could go to, like, uh, Kakariko Village mm-hmm. and then go to Death Mountain, but that's like it. <laughs> or you can <laughs> yeah, turn around and go back to like the Lost Woods. <laughs> it's like that's it. <laughs> oh, but yeah, but it always seems so huge in time. Yes. Yeah, yes. I mean, with Wind Waker, the, the thing that the reason I picked Wind Waker really is because I played it again last year. Well, last year, the year before when it came out in HD, and it was just I just loved it just as much, which was a real surprise because I played Majora's Mask again, and. Uh, I still loved it, but it wasn't quite as amazing as I remembered it being. And similar yeah. with Ocarina of Time, you know, I mean, they were all of their time, you know. Whereas Wind Waker's ended, I think it, it would last forever. I think it's uh, it's timeless. Excellent. Well, I think I I don't think we need to say any too much more. I think many people who are probably listening have played uh, a lot of the Zelda series and Wind Waker, but with Breath of the Wild coming, and unfortunately, seemingly like it's going to be delayed. Which Stupid sucks Breath, a little. Breath of the Wild was supposed to be out while I was on maternity leave, and now it's not going to be. So many things, but at least, well, when we flip back, we are at least seeing games that aren't vaporware, like The Last Guardian and Final Fantasy XV. So, I have faith that by this time next year, we will have all played Breath of the Wild, and I will be doing this podcast, and so many people will have probably chosen to take it with them as well. <laughs> So why don't we move on to the next game now, which is once again changing themes and sort of gameplay elements as well. This list is very diverse, Kezza, so good (laughs) job. Um, So why don't we listen to some very old-timey and classical music um, from the early, earlier years of the 20th century, and let's dive straight into the next game.
The next game on your list, Keza, is a game that was developed by Interplay Entertainment uh, and released all the way back uh, for Windows uh, in September of 1997, which is a long time ago. Um, I remember when I asked you, oh, specifically which game in the series? And you're like, oh, the first, the first, <laughs> the, the first. I was like, oh, very interesting. Um, and it's a game that, I don't know, sort of set set the way for many other titles obviously interplay were a huge rpg developer at the time and and the but the system this game had the sort of groups and special system that it used uh just sort of broke rpgs at the time and everyone wanted to be like it so the game you have chosen is of course fallout the first fallout game um were you like a big pc game player anyway um yeah how never. did you sort of end up playing Fallout? I'd never ever have been a big PC gamer because I was brought up with consoles and then I was too poor for PCs <laughs> after that for years. Um, but I had a uh, crap laptop like every student does. Um, so I didn't play Fallout the first until 2006. 2006, wow. Yeah, and basically I decided, well, there's this whole golden era, supposedly, of PC RPGs in the late 90s. Um, yeah, and I'd never played it, and I thought, well, you know, it's useful. It, was, it worked on my rubbish laptop, and I could—I had—I did a lot of traveling at the time. I still do, so it was kind of something I could play on my laptop on a plane or whatever. Um, and I loved it to pieces. Like, the first Fallout is still the best written game I've ever played. Um, it is very, very, very clever, adaptable. Does extraordinary amounts with limited tools. It looks like shit, but. <laughs> that doesn't matter. Um, that doesn't matter to me. Um, it's uh, so the first Fallout uh, was. It's mostly most of the things that you get from it come from how you play, and unlike many modern video games, it's not like play how you want and you'll always succeed. It's literally like you will fuck up four hundred times before you find the kind of the, the way. To, and you have to play with your build. You know, if your if your character has no charisma. You're not going to be able to force your way through charisma situations. The game's not afraid to lock big parts of itself off to you, depending on how you play and what your build is. And if Absolutely. You accidentally, if you accidentally shoot an NPC in a town in the original Fallout, you can never go back there. Ever. You can't. <laughs> you have to start again if you want to go back to that town. And um, as, for that reason, it had, it had an extraordinary replayability. Um, like, I played through the original Fallout four or five times, I think, maybe three or four. <clears throat> and... Uh, the first time I played it, I played my usual kind of thief style, which is my kind of preferred RPG style. It was, it was really hard to get through the game like that. Second time, I, I just played a huge brute that shot everything, which was also quite fun. Uh, and then, you know, I think something that, that um, exemplifies Fallout's real commitment to role-playing for me is that if you give your character an intelligence value of one, they literally can't speak. They, 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 they try, have like all gobbledygook yeah, type they try, they sort try and, of They stuff, try and yeah. talk to people and just come up with <laughs> the caveman style. And that really cracks me up. you know, Because you can, you can play the game, it'll be really hard, but you can get through the whole game without even being able to talk to anyone. And um, there were always so many ways to approach a situation and it was so flexible. And it wasn't like, I feel like in modern games a lot of the time there's all these invisible walls around what you can do. Um, and this is one of the reasons I have an irrational hatred of the Bethesda Fallouts, because the Bethesda Fallouts are like a buffet. They're like, have all this, this is all here for you, enjoy. And there's no value to anything you achieve in those games, because it's, you're always going to win. You know, 
And although okay, I, yeah. feel, I feel like the, you know, I, I very much like the Elder Scrolls games, um, even though they're built on the same foundations and have the same kind of attitude. Because you know, I, I love the emergent stuff that randomly happens to you with those open worlds. It's really good fun. But for me, Fallout is about real hardcore, proper, you know, shit going down. Things are very bad in Fallout World. Things are really hard, and that's reflected in how hard it is to to, to make progress in the game and, and how you know how easy it is to die. And the fact is that Bethesda Fallout's completely abandoned that whole kind of. And also, the, the, the Fallout Three's first big choice: uh, Will you blow up this town or will you not? It's like, oh, it's not exactly Shades of Grey, is it? And it's like, the, why would I anyway? I, I've just come out of a vault. I just, I'm just trying to find my dad. Like, yeah, it, it, why would I be doing this? It's a power fantasy, right? Like the Bethesda Fallouts are ultimately power fantasies. The and worlds revolve around you as yes. the player and the character. That is the opposite of what the original Fallout was, and Fallout Two as well. Which you know, if I, if I can have the two as a double pack, <laughs> I'd take. If there's two. a retail pack, then maybe we can swing that. Yep. Uh, in Fallout Two and Fallout One, have this, uh, that similar attitude. Just everything is terrible. Everything really is terrible. There are no good decisions. There are very few good outcomes. But it's also wickedly funny. It's so well written. Um, I believe it was written by Brian Fargo, the first Fallout. And uh, I think so. Yes, it's, it's witty. It's so funny. You know, and bear in mind, I was playing this in in two thousand six. You know, I wasn't just kind of caught up in the moment. Well, that's what I was going to ask, because I was going to ask, you were playing it in 2006. Obviously, 2006, we were on the sort of cusp of the Wii. Uh, the Xbox 360 had been out a year, and mm-hmm. the PlayStation 3 was coming. And the games we were starting to see were these huge, big uh, titles. Like, obviously, Oblivion had been out for a year by that time. Um, how, how did it compare to all these other games? Was it like... Were you like, oh my god, why do games even exist when we had this back then? <laughs> was well, it kind it was of more, like that? Like, kind of... oh, fuck other games. Like, this is where it's at. Yeah, I mean, for, it was more... What, what, what got me about it was what it does with such incredibly limited tools. Um, you know, because it, I mean, it, it looks... I mean, it's it's, basically, it's in this minuscule resolution. And I'm like, I don't understand how the game is calculating all of the different stuff that it's always calculating. You know, with the, with the available memory that it had. You know, because yeah. it, it remembers what you've done and, it, and it, the, the relationships between the character that you've built and your actions. So they really are consequential, they're properly consequential in a way that isn't just choose A or B. It's like a rich, built up tapestry of your actions that then completely define the game experience for you. And that's something the games at the time were trying to do. They were trying to make choice and consequence like, feel meaningful. And I didn't know that we'd already done it, like way back. You know, we've made several games that you hear that, that really give you that, that <laughs> sense of choice and consequence and don't make you feel like a toddler. Like, you can have an ice cream or you can have a sweetie. It's not like that. It's a proper, you know... I'm trying to think of a good... I'm trying to think of a really good moral example from the Fallout games. Oh, there's one in Fallout 2. I think Fallout 2, maybe Fallout 1. Um, but basically, you end up in this horrible shotgun wedding by accident. <laughs> um, and it's just you know it's, it's one of these situations there's also a, there's, a, there's a town in Fallout to, I mean there's lots of towns with uh, a, lot of, there's a lot of there's a lot of drugs and prostitution in, and of course it was very grown up I'm sure from the time in the 90s but it's not like a big deal you know it doesn't it doesn't it feels mature in a way that a lot of actually more modern games really didn't especially at that time when games were trying very very hard to be films a lot of the time um, and Fallout by comparison, I mean, it wasn't interested in being a film. It's also very text-based, and I'm a big reader 
and I really liked them because the kind of cool descriptions that it had. It had a little ticker on the side that would kind of describe in text what you were seeing on the screen, and it helped the kind of muddy, rubbish visuals to come alive and to kind of use your mind. It was more like a, it felt more like a kind of pen and paper RPG made by humans, you know, where um, your experience is directed by a storyteller rather than a bunch of systems and algorithms. Something that is dynamic and can react to what you're inputting as the player. Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong, it's, it's quite a primitive game, but it's just yeah. got this very rich fiction and really great writing. And, you know, the things that work about it are the things that I think are still kind of lacking from, from big polished games. Um, and, you know, I was so upset with Fallout 3 when it came out because I was, I was, I was obviously in a died of happiness. I remember going, when did they announce that? Gosh, it must have been in 2006 when they announced Fallout 3 or 2007, maybe? Um, it was around that time because there was that sort of big revelation that Bethesda had sort of bought uh, the franchise off into play. Yeah, they, I, well, they they bought like the license to do it, and then they made Fallout Three, and then they bought the entire thing off them. Yeah, like uh, I just well. I had just played Fallout One and Two when all that started happening, so I was like, oh my god, I'm charmed. This is amazing. The series is coming back now. Um, but you know, I'm, and also I was a big fan of Oblivion and Morrowind. Um, to a greater extent, even. So I just remember being really excited about Fallout 3. And I couldn't get on with it. I just couldn't. I couldn't. I, t- I tried it three times. I think I played it for up to about 30 hours, three separate times, and I just, I just couldn't get on with it. And it was so kind of massively disappointing. Uh, <laughs> I love New Vegas. New Vegas is written by Obsidian. That's the difference there. Um, well, the, the, uh, uh, bleh, well, New Vegas appeared on last week's show. My guest last week chose uh, New Vegas, and we sort of discussed about how the difference between the sort of Bethesda games to that Obsidian game. And oh, well, I don't need to go into that then. <laughs> the, the sort of... Well, there's sort of just a uniqueness that Obsidian as RPG makers are able to... Re- especially considering some of the Obsidian team actually worked on the first few Fallouts yeah, as well. It's yeah, almost like interplay. You, you could so tell. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And there is just that dynamic difference between making the player the hero and just everything revolving around them compared to this, where you sort of have to make interesting choices as a person uh, to go along with the bigger characters in the story. Yeah, I mean, it's not about you. That's kind of the thing that, that I liked about uh, about New Vegas and about the original Fallout. It's not about you, really. You know, you're, you're not the centre of the universe. I like games in which you're not the centre of the universe. So games games, where, and games where it feels like the world can exist without you. Exactly, <laughs> my friend. Yes, that's that's yeah. like. I love games like that. I'm trying <laughs> to think of like the Yakuza games. They're some oh, of my favorite wow. open world okay. games. Or Xenoblade Chronicles, most recently, like Xenoblade Chronicles X. Um, just worlds where all these other things live, and they seem to be able to happily live, even if you're not there. Like nothing will happen to them, or nothing bad will happen. Um, if yeah, you're not there as the player, there's another few. There's another another game a few more down my list that, that also feels that way. So I'm afraid to mention it now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please do. <laughs> but I think it's about time that we move on to your next game now. And once again, another diverse list and another diverse entry compared to the one we've just to- talking about. We're jumping back between themes, which is excellent. Usually, we sort of go through a person's list and they'll be like, here's the RPG block. Here is the, <laughs> the platformer block. So this is great to go back and forth. So why don't we listen to some truly, truly excellent music and let's dive straight into it. Music 
So the next game on Kez's list is a game that's appeared quite a few times on this show before. And some of you will know that I have spoken at great length about this game and just how much it's just pure Nintendo brilliance in uh, an incredible package. Uh, This game is developed, obviously, by Nintendo EAD Tokyo, um, produced by not. Uh, Miyamoto. It's actually under the wings of Tezuka and uh, Koizumi, who are two of the big Mario guys these days. It was released all the way back in 2010. Uh, it's the sequel to Super Mario Galaxy, released with a Wii, Super Mario Galaxy 2. Kaza, why is Super Mario Galaxy 2 going with you to Outside Island? Because it's amazing! <laughs> <laughs> I think There we go, now we can move on to the next yep. game. Uh, <laughs> it's, it is joy, it is absolute joy, that game. It's, it's so picking again, picking one Mario is hard. I mean, you say this is the diverse list, fairly Nintendo heavy. I've just noticed. Fairly Nintendo heavy, but diverse in the, well, in the sort of gameplay that we've chosen. We've gone from RPGs to rhythm games yeah. to platformers. Um, but you know, Mario Galaxy Two is is my favorite 3D Mario because it has it riffs on everything. It riffs on every other Mario, and um, you know, there's this fantastic moment. Like my favorite moment in in probably. One of my top moments in all video games is when you get dropped into the throwback galaxy in Super Mario um, Galaxy 2, and it goes, and you're like, hang on a minute. And you realise that it's it's a full recreation of um, of that first the first level of, of yep. Super Mario 64, and at that moment, it was just amazing. I loved it. And, um, it's just, it's so clever. And it's got it's just so sublimely designed. It doesn't seem that there's there's a, a millimeter anywhere of that game that hasn't been polished, and uh, you know care has been, and attention has been lavished upon every single element of that game. And I love the fact that it has an idea, and then it's like that was a cool idea, right? But we're not going to do that again. We're going to do something else now. And as a result, it just keeps it keeps your brain engaged as well as um, just being so well designed. The way he feel the way Mario feels in your hands to move in that game. Is it's just perfection? It really, it really is bliss. Considering um, how fucked up the physics are as well, just the yeah. fact that you'll move a pixel inch to a left or a right, and then all of a sudden the controls change completely depending on where you are <laughs> on a certain object. Is just that Nintendo perfection it's that is sometimes just untouched by others. Yeah, it's the craft of it. It's just it's so you know perfect. The, the craft of it is so is so extraordinary it's like i mean for me for me a good mario game a good mario level is kind of like sitting in front of a really amazing abstract painting like the the spatial the spatial understanding of mario design good mario design is is second to none for me just the, the way that you kind of and the way that your brain understands the spaces and the colors um, yeah there's something almost uh again there's something almost kind of subconscious about how good it is um it just feels good it feels good to play um, but then it's also just, it's so much fun and it's so creative, you know, it's, it's just, it's a really creative game. And I don't think Nintendo has ever given enough credit, really, by people who don't like Nintendo anyway, for, for the amount of creativity that it exhibits. You know, the, 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 the Nintendo cliche is, oh, it just released the same thing every few years. But they really Which don't. Is, like they, they basically, nonsense. Yeah, they, they basically revolutionise it every, I would say twice a decade, they probably revolutionise their games. People get confused between... Oh, they just release the same game all the time. No, they just release a game with the same character yes, all the, the time. Same the series. game is completely different. Yeah. The, like if you play Mario Galaxy, like one or two, and then compare it to Sunshine, which is also a three D game, totally different. Or then you go and compare it to like 
New Super Mario, which is was released around the same time for the DS, and they're just entire yeah, two entirely different games. Yeah, and you know, even the Zeldas, like you go from Link to the Past to Wind Waker, and tell me that they're exactly the same. You know, or even if you go from yeah. Twilight Princess to Wind Waker, which was sequential, and say, oh, it's the same. Majora's Mask and Ocarina, not the same. Um, but yeah, I know Nintendo people can seem like cultists. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The yeah. worst <laughs> argument, the worst argument that I ever had with any romantic partner was over Super Mario Galaxy Two. Unbelievably. Um, what? Please, please enlighten. <laughs> we why? why? <laughs> we were doing past the pad on Mario Galaxy Two, and um, okay. So the rule was that you pass the pad when you complete a level or when you die. So I would complete a level, pass the pad over. Um, my partner would walk off the nearest ledge. <laughs> so it would kind of go on until he got really, really agitated about it. Because um, he'd played like five minutes. And yeah, <laughs> I mean, played almost the whole game. He's, he's, just, he's not really, he's still my partner, unbelievably. Um, he's not really a 3D platformer guy. So, um, you know, he, he needed a few goes. Whereas I didn't because I'm playing 3D Mario since I was seven. So it's just like second nature to me. But anyway, um, he got sufficiently angry at the game and at me um, that eventually he went, This isn't as good as Sly Raccoon 3. <laughs> which is like the hugest load of nonsense I've ever heard <laughs> so we ended up having like an hour long stand up argument about whether Mario was as good as Sly Raccoon which is an insane argument to have <laughs> would he be able to defend himself these days I dare never bring it up again <laughs> might be the end of this like his one embarrassed Sly Raccoon <laughs> <laughs> was that like his one embarrassing moment? Yeah, it was, it was, it was funny though. Was, I'm sure I've I'm sure I've come out with some right old nonsense in the middle of video game arguments in my time. That was to me like the pinnacle. <laughs> so anyway, um, so um, just well, one thing obviously this both Mario Galaxy and Galaxy Two have been spoken about a lot on the show. Obviously by people who have grown up with Nintendo like you and me, mm-hmm. um, but. What has become a point of contention a few times uh, is which one? Um, there have been people who have defended Galaxy saying it's a lot better than 2 and 2 is just too much of the same and they didn't particularly like Yoshi and that sort of stuff and all those additions. Um, why are you taking Galaxy 2 over Galaxy 1? I think 2 is more varied. I think every level in 2 is a bit different. Um, I mean, it, Well, I mean, that's true of Mario Galaxy 1 as well, of course. But I think Mario Galaxy 1, for me, it was it was like establishing the kind of, you're in space now, things are a bit weird, physics-wise and so on. Whereas Galaxy yeah. 2 was like, you know that, you know you're in space. Let's have some other weird ideas as well. And um, I also like, I felt like Galaxy 2 had more of a playful attitude to Mario history than Galaxy 1. And there were so many little little references and Easter eggs and stuff. And yeah. I, I just and Some people felt that Galaxy 2 felt a bit restless, you know? Whereas Galaxy 1 felt a bit more focused. That's true. But I like the restlessness. I like the fact that it was jumping all over the place all the time. And I quite like the discrete level structure as well. I thought that was good. As opposed to the, the hub. Was Galaxy 1 a hub world? I seem to remember it was a hub yeah, world. Y- yeah, you had your big sort of... Um, oh, what was it? The, the garden. That's right, yeah. Was it the garden? Yeah, it was the garden. And then in the second one, it was like Mario's head. Yeah, Mario's head. It was like a planet. Which is which is wonderful. Yeah, I just I, I don't know. I felt like it, it it was more lively. That would be my more lively, more varied, and it, it had it kind of um, 
the attention. It, it kind of held my attention more effectively, I think. Just by it definitely, there. it definitely sort of did more because, as you said, it's sort of you guys know what you're doing. We don't need to go on too much about the physics and the planet thing that was interesting about the first game that we spent a lot of time on. So why don't we throw new power-ups in there? Let's let you give you Yoshi. Let's see how you yeah. do that. And then let's just make a few other levels that are kind of quirky and have new ideas that build upon what we've already tried. It was experimental. I think experimental is the yeah. word I'd use for it. I like that. I enjoyed that about it. So are we going to see a Galaxy 3, Kaiser? Now that is the question. I really hope so. Because... As much as I enjoyed Super Mario 3D World. 3D Land and World. Whichever one of those. Actually, they were both amazing, yeah. so let's just talk about both of them. As much as I enjoyed both of them, I didn't think they had the kind of freewheeling creativity of Galaxy. But maybe they've left it behind. Maybe they're like, we're done with Galaxy now. You know? And that's another that thing. Really Nintendo sad. does need stuff. <laughs> But it's funny, it's actually going back on what I kind of just said, contradicting what I said. It's funny because Nintendo sort of, especially with like the new Super Mario Bros., they did that kind of to death and they kept doing those games. And yeah, then, the new Super Mario Bros. Um, games were all the same, let's be fair. Yeah, <laughs> but they kind of just left Galaxy, strangely enough, to just two games. Whereas usually they sort of do three, four, five or six in a series. Um and they keep it going. I don't know whether they feel like they don't have enough ideas to make it. I, I don't know. Again. I think, um, I mean, it's kind of like, Nintendo does sometimes have a habit of just being like, we're done with that now. You know, like when you mentioned before the controversy about Wind Waker. Because we've had Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask, both of which were like, you know, realistic in, in the way that things were in the 90s. You know? Yeah. And then they were like, no, we're not going to do that now. I want to do this cartoon thing. And everyone was like, meh. They didn't care. But, but then they went back to it. They went back <laughs> with to Twilight, Twilight Princess. Princess, yeah. Um, and uh, then Breath of the Wild is very much again veering off in the more kind of, um, I don't want to say childlike because it's not childlike, but um, right. That looks more like like a link to the past. Uh, although strangely enough, it's hard to compare. But that does feel a little more like a link to the past and a link between worlds. Well, I was, uh, yeah. I mean, I always felt like, um, I mean, Twilight Princess was like exactly the Zelda that I didn't want, which is the emo Zelda, really. Um, the well, early 2000s yeah the, the early two, like, <laughs> it really was the emo zelda you know and it's funny because uh i remember i went to a zelda fan fest in 2012 maybe um which was being held at game city in nottingham and i went along and i was talking to people who were there for like an ign report yeah and uh a lot of the teenagers who were there like their zelda was twilight princess you know there was an 18 year old with a wolf link on him and all sorts Oh my god! I know, and I was like, "Whoa, that's your Zelda." Because to me, it was I've never crazy. even thought about people Zelda being Twilight Princess. Yeah, I know, and it was, it was for them, and uh, you know, these people who are in their presumably very early twenties now, but you know, Twilight Princess was the Zelda for them. The one that came that's out so them. strange. I know when they were impressionable, that was their Zelda. I felt like ancient. Man, I only ever feel like someone's first was either the first, and they are old, or a link to the past, which is a lot of people's uh, kind of was kind of mine, but then obviously everyone else is Ocarina of Time. Yeah, uh, I've never ever thought about either Wind Waker or Twilight Princess being someone's first Zelda Some game, first and then is going to be Skyward Sword. You know? Oh soon. my! And soon. and that they're huge fans of the series because of that game. Yeah, that would be amazing to sort of hear 
if they play other games in the series, what they think of those games compared to what was their first. It is, it is very and, interesting because, you know, a lot of our affection for, for games and, of course, for music and books and everything else is tied very much to the time of our lives that was happening while we were playing them, which yeah. is obviously something that this podcast is, is really, you know, good at highlighting. It's a very interesting aspect for our relationship to games. Yeah. Um, and so when you meet someone... Who's who's you know there? Zelda was Twilight Princess. Like my instinct was to be like, oh, but no, it wasn't as good for all these reasons. But it's, that doesn't matter. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just kind of condescending time. in a way, isn't it? Almost yeah. like, like I remember when Twilight Princess came out. I I remember, I I have a fond memory of Twilight Princess, but I it, it was buying it. Like, <laughs> like I, for I, me, I, was it was buying it. The game, not so much. Like. I actually really like Twilight Princess in some areas, but it does have problems uh, for me. And it is a little too moody. And I don't particularly like that. I like the Nintendo that is fun and yeah. and beautiful and colorful. Um, but Nintendo is still good at pretty much doing any genre. So it, it wasn't too bad. But for me, my memory of Twilight Princess is I had a Wii, but I wasn't allowed it till Christmas. <laughs> so to still feed off the energy of, of having the hype of a Wii, I went to i went to college and then i i would leave college in the at lunchtime and i went into the town city center and and i went and i bought a copy of twilight princess but i couldn't play it for like a month i i, I just had this copy of twilight princess <laughs> and i would just i put it on my desk and i was like soon soon we'll be able to play and it went a month by and i finally could play it when i got the wii and well when i was allowed to play the wii and um yeah i was like oh it was it was a good game, but my fondest memory is of buying it and staring at it on Fun, my desk yeah. for a month. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah I've, I've definitely been there with games. <laughs> I think but the, uh, that is, yeah, it was, that, sorry, go on. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that is a game doesn't stand out to me in the time of my life as being an important one. Um, and people thinking, oh my god, there was this revolutionary time in my life when I played Twilight Princess. I'm like, oh, I was just staring at it on a desk it wasn't that important <laughs> seems incredibly condescending i know it is funny and also like there's the the element of restriction like when you're younger you only get one or two games a year a lot of the time yeah absolutely probably not now um but certainly maybe yeah um, especially with free-to-play games yeah exactly like I'm, I'm wondering whether people form the same kind of really obsessive attachments as kids now and yeah they, they still do i mean to be fair my um my partner's son is 11 and despite the fact that he lives in a house with all the games in the world he still only plays three you know he still has a very kind of obsessive attachment to these particular games and they're going to be the ones that he would he would talk about on a podcast and he's, he's yeah um, it's funny actually because i've never really done this before but if you are listening to the show and twilight princess or wind waker were you was your first zelda and you've since played other zelda games but you still feel like that's good do message me i am very interested to sort of <laughs> hear your thoughts on that i've never really thought about that before that's really intriguing but we are talking about super mario galaxy <laughs> are we? Oh, God. <laughs> and, yeah we were and uh, not so much about nintendo but yeah super mario galaxy 2 i think we can cap it off it's it's just i'm sure such you, a I mean, you, you've had lots of other people talk about mario galaxy 2 it, yeah, and it's it's just such a wonderful game. It's such a wonderful series. And I do hope in the future, obviously with the Nintendo Switch, the sort of Mario clip that we got didn't look like a planet. Um, 
It definitely looked like a level, like a segmented level, like in Super Mario 64 or, or 3D Land and stuff like that. So doesn't seem like that's going to be Galaxy either. But well, who I knows? Had, I had a really Fingers weird crossed. dream about a new Mario. You had a weird dream Mario. about Mario. It was an urban Mario. Where it was Mario in cities. So all of the kind of spatial puzzling and all of the platforming was to do with navigating buildings and cities and like almost it's like a version of Assassin's Creed but with Mario controls is what I, is what I had in my head. Was and, it um, awful? Do you know what? I, I don't know. It was just a dream game. You know, you're playing a game in a dream and it's just yeah. there for you. You, you, don't, they're not, you don't have your critical faculties in games. Um, <laughs> but I did like the visual of a kind of Mario in a city, you know? Because there was that basketball game. What was it? Like Mario Street Mix or something? There oh was like God. a basketball game once Mario um, that was kind of like three. trying to be urban Mario. <laughs> and it, it was a little weird. Oh, it was a weird time in my career where basically all I was doing was reviewing odd DS games. And Wii games. And Mario Hoops 3 on 3 on the DS was one of the random games I reviewed that time. I remember the game was... Was that... Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I remember playing that game and thinking that game was alright. It's not bad. It's just a very odd thing to spend 30 hours of your life playing. <laughs> <laughs> one of those fond memories yeah. of being a games journalist. I the, 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 that's the kind of the life when you're a freelancer. You end up playing all sorts of just random things. Maybe it's not the same. <laughs> now, it was then. It was, we were talking like, you know, six, seven years ago now for me. But I remember the, the day that I decided I probably had to get a job was when the Connect was coming out. And I was reviewing the Connect launch titles for Eurogamer. Oh, God. Connect them all. Yeah. Connect Sports, uh -huh. whatever. All oh, of that. And those games were bad. It didn't fucking work. It didn't work. That stupid thing did not work. Something didn't work yeah. in my house. Oh, and I remember like, because the thing only arrived the day before launch, so I had to review like six games in 24 hours. And oh, God. It was like four in the morning and I was trying to do connectimals and the lights in my living room weren't good enough to connect. And <laughs> I like actually burst into tears trying to throw an invisible tennis ball at a pretend tiger. <laughs> and I just had one of those moments where I was like, I'm not sure about my life choices. <laughs> I feel really bad for anyone who was a games journalist between the years of 2006 and like 2011 where Yo. all they had to do was the <laughs> Wii party games or the Kinect games oh, or the God. PlayStation Move games and that was like the highlights of their career. I played I played a lot of shit. I played some good stuff as well and wrote about some good stuff but I did play, I reviewed a bunch of random shit during those years. <laughs> well... We're going to move on to the next game now. And unfortunately, this is probably another game that we might go on a massive Nintendo, ta Nintendo tangent about. But probably we'll stick to what was recently released yesterday uh, and sort of the series in general. So why don't we listen to literally some of my favorite music of all time. This is a, such a great list for music. So thank you so much for that, Keza, because <laughs> editing this later means I get to listen to some wonderful music. So thank you so much for that. And um, so let's listen to some music and let's talk about Keza's next game.
So, sticking once again with the sort of Nintendo vibe of everything, and because uh, you were trying to get bend the rules a little bit, you're trying to be <laughs> ambiguous about what you're choosing here, because I think anyone who sort of likes this series probably would be happy with taking most of the games, uh, maybe one or two, maybe don't take your fancy, but pretty much every game in the series is incredibly solid and incredibly fun, and we saw yesterday in Europe, the brand new generation was released, Pokemon Sun and Moon. Um, but we are talking about the very first. Um, but if we are talking about the very first, I want to know which version you would take. Uh, we are talking about Game Freak and Nintendo's Pokemon Red and Blue, uh, released all the way back for the Game Boy back in 1996 in Japan uh, and came out in 1998 in the West. So there was a good two years back when games used to take ages from Japan to come back out here. Um, directed by <laughs> directed by Satoshi Tajiri and the artist Ken Sugimori. Obviously, we're talking about Pokemon. Um, Kazo, which version would you be taking? Because obviously, you're taking Pokemon Red and Blue. Um, you can take the Game Boy versions, or you can also take the Game Boy Color and with those games to give them a little bit more life. Or you could take the uh, Game Boy Advance uh, Pokemon Red Fire or Pokemon Leaf Green. I would take I Fire imagine Red you're taking those. on the Game Boy Advance, probably. That's, uh, that, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, this was a tricky one because I had I had three games jostling for this particular position. And they were all quite different. Um, orig- original Pokemon, Grand Theft Auto V, <laughs> and, um, and Advance Wars. Advance Wars. Now that's a that's a series that's never appeared before, and yeah. I would like to appear one day. So I feel a little bit bad for picking probably the most obvious and most discussed one of those three. Um, <laughs> but, but it's your list, so yeah. it's entirely fine. But I was thinking about it, and like you know, if if I had to live forever without any Pokemon game, I think I'd be a little bit sad. I think I would. Um, Pokemon was. I mean, those two years waiting. I mean, I was like eleven when Pokemon came out, and honestly, it was just the longest two years of my life waiting and also like trying to pursue because my parents were not keen on Game Boy you know they just about got comfortable with us having games in the house but the idea of having games that we could take with us they were like no it's too far so <laughs> at the age of sort of nine and ten I was making elaborate PowerPoint presentations about why I should be allowed a Game Boy oh my god I did that too really? I did that for two <laughs> things I did that for a copy of what was it? It was something really stupid. Oh, Godzilla Destroy All Monsters Melee for the Nintendo GameCube. Oh, so and also to get a pet snake. They're the only <laughs> two times I pulled out the PowerPoint. Yeah. I just, it's, it's, it seems really ingenious now. Like, <laughs> it's just, kids are so adorable if they if they go to that length. It's like, what kind of monster would deny them after all that effort that they've made? <laughs> it's my poor parents having to sit in their conservatory whilst I took them through point by point why I should be in a Game Boy. <laughs> Look, there's a Charizard. I Look, know, I've made mom, a please. Graphic. I've done uh, <laughs> I did eventually get one as a reward for getting into a good school when I was into a good high school when I was eleven. And my mother produced this Game Boy Color with a copy of Pokemon Red, and just it, it was a beautiful moment, beautiful childhood moment. Um, Excellent. But Pokemon is—it's just—I think it's one of the most powerful children's fantasies committed to fiction. It's like Narnia. Uh, in that it's about children just, or like Harry Potter, it's about children taking control and, you know, living in a, a world free of adults and free of being told what to do and just going out on your own adventure. 
and there's something so kind of warming about that. I mean, obviously, obviously I'm, you know, as, as I'm expecting a child pretty soon, I think that's affecting my mood <laughs> about what kind of game <laughs> I would take. Because like a few of the games I've picked here are ones that, I mean, well, two of the games I've picked here are ones that really remind me of childhood. Pokemon is one, and uh, Zelda Wind Waker is the other. And that kind of point, and that the point of your life where you sort of really want the independence of being out there in the big wide world and having your adventures, but you can't quite have it yet. And Pokemon is that in a nutshell. And also, like it's it's this arcane series of systems that adults couldn't possibly understand. Like I remember like knowing all the 151 Pokemon and knowing how they all interacted with each other and knowing all the types yeah. and all the stats. You know, it was absolutely arcane. It was like algebra. Um, <laughs> Fun and, and you know, part of the point was that parents couldn't understand it, and adults couldn't understand it, and it felt like this kind of locked-off knowledge that was yours and yours only, and shared only by other kids. And uh, the thing is that that's kind of persisted now. Um, you know, now that we're you know, the first generation of Pokemon players, it's been twenty years, you know, um, or fifteen. How many years has it been? I guess fifteen. Twenty. This year, this 20, year is the twentieth anniversary oh of the series, which oh. is just makes me feel old, but. Makes me feel incredibly happy to have existed in this time. Do you know what? Um, um, one of my favourite things I've ever done in my job was go to the Pokemon World Championships. I was going to bring that up. You wrote some excellent articles about the Pokemon <laughs> Championships because they are like they're like my weird fantasy. Like I want to go to one of those one day just to be like a big kid. It one hundred percent lived up to my. Oh my god, I want to go so badly. I first heard you talk about it on uh, Matt Lee's Daft Souls podcast, and then I read the articles about it, and I was like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, I want to go to one so badly. It was pretty, pretty, uh, it was pretty intense. I'm not going to do my Pokemon sob story, because it'll bring the mood down, but shall we say, as a child, I really, really wanted to go to Pokemon World Championships in 2000. It was like my life goal, and I was thwarted in that goal by a few unfortunate, sad events involving lost save, save game files and possibly a saboteur brother. Oh no! <laughs> I won't never do forgiven. the whole sob story. But suffice to say, I never got to go. And I eventually did get to go, you know, as, as an adult, um, to Washington, D.C., to the, to the Pokemon World Championships. And it's such a different experience as an adult. Because when I was there, I was kind of torn between sort of looking at all the people competing and being like, oh man, I'd love to compete. I, I would love to yeah. compete. And then all these lovely, lovely families I was meeting, these little kids whose parents were kind of into Pokemon and who sort of, and the kid, or, or the parents who didn't know what the hell was going on, but their kids were so into it and they were just like, yeah, he's really good, or she's really good at something. You know, we're supporting them in that. And that was almost, that was as touching. You know, there was the, the, the families that all played together, was, that was amazing. And then there were the families where the parents were just like, we don't know what's going on, but they're really into it. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and it was weird because I was kind of torn between being like, oh, I'd like to compete as an adult, and being like, yeah. oh man, if I had a child who made it to the Pokemon World Championships, I would die of pride. I'd be so happy. <laughs> can you Maybe that's your new project. Yeah. Next 10 year project. <laughs> you can't control what kids like, but you can do your best to influence. Um, yeah, my, my, my stepson, who, is, um, who I mentioned before, who's 11, remains stubbornly resistant to Nintendo for his entire childhood. Oh my so god. It's heartbreaking. Um <laughs> I think as no soon, son of mine. Yeah, I think as soon as you show a, a, a small boy anything with guns in, that's you. you you're lost. <laughs> You've lost the battle. Um, basically, as soon as he started playing Destiny, which his dad played with him when he was about eight or nine, as soon as that started happening, it was like there's nothing else. There's no point. You know, he decided that other games were for babies because he didn't have guns in. 
So yeah, I, I'm going to be trying my best to force Nintendo upon my progeny, but I'm <laughs> never sure whether it'll work. Um, but yeah, the, the original Pokemon games, I picked them because I, the thing is, Sun and Moon is so good that I might, I might after another 40 hours of playing Sun and Moon, I might say Sun and Moon instead. Um, I was going to say, because... I always think now that if I was going to choose one, I would probably have to choose the most recent one because I'd want to spend a lot of time catching all of the, like, that That's would it, be my there's project. More, there's more to it, you know, you can spend yeah. more time. You know, I, I, I felt uncomfortable picking Sun and Moon because I've only played it for five hours. But let's, you know, the, and the reason I was being ambiguous about which Pokemon is it, it's all Pokemon, isn't it? And, you know, the, the core of it, so which I've kind of explained, the kind of core adventure of it, and the core kind of, uh, mathematical game of Pokemon. That's the same for all of them. And yeah. So really, what you're picking is the one that you have the fondest relationship with. Kind of like, uh, like for me, I would probably like the fondest for me is gold. Gold means more to me, I think, than any video game ever. I think, which is strange because obviously, so many games mean so much to me, but. Gold specifically, I played Red and Blue and I'd really enjoyed them, but gold is like something I have so many stories about and so much, <laughs> so many memories about. Um, but then, uh, like Soul Silver and the re releases of gold as well, just I think I'd have to take those versions. They're perfect. They're, they're the pixel Pokemon that I remember so fondly that have all the Pokemon I like in it. Uh, I'm not one of those snobby generation people i enjoy all pokemon but like the first two generations specifically have pokemon that resonate with me a lot in my memory yeah um but then at the same time i'd want to be able to try and get all of the pokemon in sun and moon like all 800 of them and just spend my days on outside island chilling playing really good games it would be a good game to play on outside island especially with the island vibe of sun and moon yeah absolutely it's funny because I've been playing Sun and Moon uh, a lot. Uh, every moment I have over this past week, I got the Japanese version last week, uh, so I've been able to play a little longer than everyone. I've put already like 40 hours into it. And what's amazing is these days, I can't do that uh, very often. And there are not many games that make me want to do that because time is unfortunately valuable yep. when you become an adult, which is really boring to say. No, and I have so much to do. But everyone should Pokemon... know that if you're not an adult yet, guys. <laughs> Yes, if you're not, uh, unfortunately, it's going to hit you like a fucking train soon <laughs> enough. Um, but there aren't many games like Dishonored 2. I was playing Dishonored 2 and I was really enjoying that. I would probably play that st for stints of four, five hours in a row, which is which is surprising because I don't do that with games. Maybe I'll play like an hour, two hours if I have time. I'm like that um, as well, mostly. Yeah. With, with the few of the games on this list. Yeah, but with Pokemon Sun and the Moon, it was just Pokemon again. And I was playing Pokemon and like Saturday... 12 hours passed by and I didn't even realize it. And I was just playing Pokemon. It just has such a hold on me and my horrible nostalgia gland that is stuck in my brain <laughs> that won't let go. Um, but yeah, it's something just, I feel so incredibly lucky to have not only have been part of the Pokemon generation, but to have been there since 1996, it not coming special. in at Emerald or Souls at Emerald or Platinum or Diamond or whatever. And uh, just since the start, feel incredibly lucky to have done that. Yeah, I mean, Pokemon Go was also my highlight of this entire terrible year. 2016 being just the worst year ever. Pokemon <laughs> Go was probably the most fun, heartwarming thing that happened that entire time. Yeah. Because it kind of brought, it, it brought a lot of people back in touch with stuff, I think. 
and stuff they were doing it... kids. Um, but in a way that was not regressive. Like what? what another, another thing that you know, people who are Nintendo people often kind of query is that Nintendo games are childish. You know, like that like they're regressive in some way, but they're really not. Like I think that um, you know, understanding childhood is actually a very adult thing. And a lot of the greatest fantasies that are, you know, for children or about children are just some of the greatest fantasies full stop. I think that applies to um, something like Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials trilogy, for instance. Yeah. Um, and I think it applies to a lot of Nintendo games. I think their understanding of... I mean, Pokemon's understanding of, of childhood and the feelings of childhood and, and kind of the motivations of childhood is very, very strong. And Pokemon Go seems to kind of bring a lot of people together and put them back in that kind of headspace. Yeah, absolutely. Like going outside and it's just doing stuff that you wouldn't do as an adult, really, which exactly. is like walking around with people in groups and and all talking about what you've collected and all talking that sort of stuff. Who share yeah. something with you? You know, I just had the best time. There was like that good four or five weeks in July, August this year, where everybody was playing Pokemon Go everywhere. I just I had a fantastic time. I really did. I thought it was it was really connected me to people and made me feel happy in a way that games you know have the power to do. Yes. Um, and, you know, I mean, obviously Pokemon Go as a game, but it's not about the game with Pokemon Go. It's about the... And, you know, having been there since the beginning of Pokemon does feel quite special, I think. And, because, uh, you know, games didn't have that much history when I was a kid. And the idea that I'm going to be able to play the kind of things I used to play as a kid with my own children, you know, that's, yeah. that's fairly new now. You, know, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't try getting your kid to play a Spectrum game. No, absolutely. You wouldn't be like, oh, hey, here's Fallout 1. Try and, try and work your way out of that, dude. Like, <laughs> you sure just, it's not going to happen, is it? <laughs> but you can give them the newest Pokemon, or the newest Mario, the newest Zelda, the newest, you know. There that and you can play that with them while also talking about the older games that you sort of play, like Super Mario 64 yeah. or Super Mario World. And that, that it's kind of a, a kind of a nice thing. It's weird how gaming is still this thing that's been so prevalent throughout my whole life, but still is a baby, really. It's yes. a very, very it's, young it's industry. It's only just that... becoming. Like, we're the first generation of people, really, for whom it's becoming an inter- intergenerational pursuit. Like, yeah. you know, parents like with kids, the... um, you know, uh, uncles with nephews or nieces, uh, this whole deal. It's, it's becoming intergenerational now. Like, you can, you can, you know, older people understand. And then there is a cutoff, a really firm cutoff at about age 35, where, you know, people who are older than that, it just wasn't part of their kind of childhood culture in the way that it, that it is for people who are younger yeah, yeah even like the diehard people who are like the very few who are playing like the the spectrum the atari and then obviously the nes like that is no older than 45 like exactly. there is just no one above that age who, yeah. I mean, my, who my, unless they got into it later didn't didn't grow up with that yeah i mean there are I mean, of course i know many people older than 35 who are into video games but it wasn't a part of the culture in the way yeah, pokemon absolutely. was for us you know, you couldn't be a kid and not know what Pokemon was, whereas you could very easily have been a kid and not known anything about the Spectrum or the Atari. Yep. Um, so yeah, That's it's, it's kind of it's a Pokemon for me. Kind of encapsulates in, in this really cool period of, uh, of this cool aspect of gaming that's really emergent, which is that it's becoming intergenerational. I think that's just it's just great. It makes me very happy. And with Sun and Moon, it will for continue carrying on, and I'll still be playing it forever, hoping that one day I can go to the Pokemon Championships. <laughs> yeah, honestly, if you can ever make it, anyone, if you can ever make it to the Pokemon Championships, it's just so lovely. It's just such a nice time. Excellent. 
Well, we're going to move on once again to sort of change themes again and switch it all up. No, we're not talking about Nintendo this time. Um, we're talking about a game that has also appeared on this show many times before for obvious good reasons. So why don't we listen to some music from this next game and let's go into Kez's second to last game. So the second to last game on Keza's list, uh, taking with her to Outer Island today, is the game developed by CD Projekt Red that's appeared multiple times on the show before. It came out in May of last year to, for the PlayStation 4, the PC, and the Xbox One. It's just received some of the most highest scoring reviews of all time. It's just dominated the RPG space for since it's released, and people just are still talking about it now in such high regard. It's of course the Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. Kaza. I think I think you can say the same thing about this that you did with Mario Galaxy 2, I imagine. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, yeah, the thing about <laughs> I, I feel I feel so generic now. Um that loads of people take the Witcher 3. Uh, all all your tastes, all yeah. your tastes uh, have been validated. <laughs> I was trying to pick my favourite open world game um, for this slot, and it was between, well, between The Witcher 3 and Grand Theft Auto 5, really. And the difference between those two things is just The Witcher's fiction, I think, is amazing. It's, it's great, and uh, there's a lot more to it um, than there is to Grand Theft Auto's fiction, which is basically sardonic. Isn't everything a bit crap and hilarious? <laughs> and um, you know, and we were talking earlier about games that feel like they could continue happily without you there. And The Witcher Three is one of those. Um, I've I've played The Witcher Three for about two hundred hours and I still haven't finished it. Um, that definitely sounds the way like a Witcher Three save file. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, just I remember. I think I finished it after about one hundred and thirty hours. Finally, after stop playing Gwent and mucking well, around, I, I think finally. Of, you know, it's a game you can really live in, and. Uh, it's another game that's just like you're not so special, you know. You're not the. I mean, Fallout and The Witcher Three have a lot in common thematically. You know, it's about what's going on around you, and you're you're a small part of the story, really. And although you know, they have that same discovery aspect as well. Like you're kind of wandering around The Witcher, and stuff just happens. It's it's funny because in a different way to Fallout Three, uh, in a sense where the world revolves around you, The Witcher is very same where it kind of does, but it it, it like gives that. a very good reason for that. It's it's literally your job for your that to happen. Reason. Yeah, and also like the the politic, the, the political stuff that's going on and the war that's going on. That's nothing to do with you. No, you know? yeah, it's, that's just happening, and you know you don't get to be the hero of that war. It's just, <laughs> and the fact is, Geralt's never ever really happy about getting involved with it anyway no, so it's almost like you've got a protagonist who doesn't want to do what you want to do as the player i also think the witcher 3 has the sweetest not sweetest 
most believable love story um, of anything I've played. I think the the love story between Geralt and Yennefer is excellent. Um, so you're a, you're a Yennefer lady. I am you? a Yennefer lady. Okay. Sure some people say, feel the same about Triss, but um, you know, I've played I played all Witchers and really enjoyed twos especially, like particularly if it was fantastically crafted, but. Three was one of those games that I kept seeing it at E3s and Gamescoms and stuff and thinking it can't be as good as it looks. You know, they, they, can't, <laughs> they can't possibly have pulled that off, you know? Uh, and then it was just such a delight to discover that they really had pulled it off. You know, it's, it's a fantastic game and pretty much everything they wanted to do that they've managed to do. And I don't know how they've done it, to be honest, because uh, it just doesn't stumble in so many places that other open world games always, always stumble. For instance, narratively, in terms of thematic consistency, and yeah. uh, you know the feel of the world, you know a lot of a lot of games get the feel of the world right, but they get something else very very wrong. Like quest design is really bad, or the combat's bad, or something. But um, you know, Witcher Three, I think the combat system's fantastic. I played it through on Blood and Broken Bones setting because I found that um, uh, if you play if you play that game on regular difficulty, you can kind of button mash your way through. Which is fine. Yeah, it's funny because the combat is kind of the only thing about this game I think that's ever been up for contention. Some people don't like it, I and I don't know why. I think it's great. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that it's it's very tactical actually. And uh, you know, well, part of the reason I've played it for so long is because I'm playing it on that difficulty setting, and when I go on a monster hunt, it's really really difficult. You, know, you have to have a all proper right monster hunt. Yeah, you, you know, you have to have all the right stuff and all the right research, and then you have to do well in the battle. It feels more like a Souls game to me. Um, the big battles in The Witcher 3 have felt more like Souls battles than like, you know, Skyrim battles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's also, I'm, I'm just, I, just, I just really like fantasy, as is probably clear from this. I, I really enjoy good, proper, like, elves and blood fantasy. I'm really into it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, oh, The Witcher 3, it's so... It's funny because it's, it's a game that keeps on giving as well, especially with the two DLC packs as well, that oh, were just... Some of the best DLC packs I'd ever played. It's just really, really good on all levels, really. And, uh, you know, it's it looks amazing. I still can't get it looks so good. It. And it's one of those <laughs> games that I'm sort of looking at it and I think, Chris, if I could show my kind of 13, 14-year-old self that games would look like this, I don't think I'd have believed it. And, uh, Back when you first played A Link to the Past, yeah, and I mean, how mind-boggling that obviously was. And I'm kind of comparing it to Hyrule Field in my head now as well, you know? Just how huge it is, and how much there is. Is it? Is it are we going to feel the same in a few years' time? Are we going to be like, wow, The Witcher 3's world was really small? I don't think so, you know? I think we've reached a kind of point in the technology of games where it's good enough now. I think games were always straining really hard against the limits of their technology until about three or four or five years ago. No, probably even, yeah. Within the last few years, I think games, they're no longer straining against the limits of their technology. If anything, um, they're sort of free of that. You know, there's a lot of indie games that don't need as much, you know, graphical fidelity. They, they, don't, need, they don't need a team of 100 people coding a system for their battle, for instance. Um, you, know, you, can, you, can, you can make a game now with the technology that you've got, and it will look good and it will play right, you know? Whereas before, even yeah. that was hard. Even making a okay, game look yeah. good and played right was uh, you know, extremely technically challenging, whereas now that's kind of the baseline. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, the thing is, The Witcher 3 is, oh, like Grand Theft Auto 5, a product of absolute excess on, on part of the developer. 
Yeah, the developer <laughs> has just had all the money and all the time that they've wanted to make what they've made. And the difference that that makes, like compare that to a game that's been squeezed out in two years. And you really see what development time does. And it makes you appreciate the craft of development more, I think. It made me, yeah. it made me appreciate it. Uh, playing The Witcher 3, I was just like, these people have had time. You know, those, these are happy developers. It's funny because CD Projekt Red a few years ago was such a small team uh, and so small, but obviously the faith that they they gained through the quality of The Witcher One and then especially The Witcher Two yeah. uh, for Warner Brothers and like Bandai who were like supporting them as publishers just sort of gave them and the money they had they were just like well, no we're just going to take our time we're just going to make this game made, as perfect as we want. They must have made a fortune off of Witcher Two to be able to do it. Yeah, I'm so glad they did, and like I think Grand Theft Auto Five is like that as well. It's just it, it, Rockstar does not shortcut; they don't take because they can afford not to, and that's a luxury almost nobody else has. Yeah, yeah, and we it, spend a lot of time working on that game. <laughs> yeah, and it creates this kind of uh, an almost unrealistic level of attention to detail, and we can enjoy that as players. You know, lucky us! How brilliant. <laughs> And it's weird because, unfortunately, these days it's less and less like we see developers who have time. Even even really, really big developers still, due to how much games cost financially, just it's too much to spend three, four years yeah, playing a game. So you had to push stuff out. So we're going to, unfortunately, it looks like we're going to see less and less of this. I think so. Um, I mean, there the Witcher... do it. Yeah, but it makes The Witcher 3... All the more special, almost. I agree. I think it's an artifact of its time in a good way. And you know the um, when you look at something like The Last Guardian, which was not in development for several several of the however many years it's been, it was on hold. Yeah. Um, and you know, they must have just got to the point where they were like, "This is too expensive to release. It's, it's got to be cancelled, basically." And then it, it obviously it was rescued down the line. But you know, you wonder how many games that happens to. I mean, lots, if you work in... So many, so many. It's lots, but, you know, you just get to the point where it's actually more expensive to finish the game and release it than it is to just cut your losses. Ah, game development and the games (laughs) industry is just such a... I'm sure Jason Schreier talked talked at length about that. (laughs) Yeah, well, I was a part of the the GTA V development uh, for three years, so I sort of seen this firsthand... Uh, this sort of stuff and unfortunately Rockstar well fortunately enough Rockstar are you know financially able to pretty much take as much time as they want with anything and you know Red Dead Redemption 2 has been in development for a heck of a long time Mm -hmm. and as you can imagine most games that you probably don't even know about are right now that could surprise you one day so hopefully we still see these these small nuggets of triple A titles that just come out and are just spectacular Here's like hoping, The Witcher man. 3. Here is hoping. Well, I think it's about time we move on to Kez's next game, which is a game in its sense that feels massive and huge and gives that AAA experience, in my opinion. Um, but for some reason, they're able to pump out these games quite often. So why don't we listen to the next uh, music from the next game and let's dive straight into Kez's final game.
so here we are. We are finally at Kez's last game now. We're going to talk about the final game before we send her off to play all these wonderful games in such a beautiful setting as well. So, of course, we're back at sort of Nintendo. I <laughs> do, do we count this as Nintendo? Definitely not. I think... No, no. I think... I think the development side, definitely not. But the reason this game is still around, I think, is in big part to Nintendo. Uh, as this is a series that's gone back and forth between popularity for a long time now. In Japan, it's huge. It's still huge and has always been massive. But in the West, we've seen over the past few years that it really has become its own beast. Um, no pun intended. And so this is a game that released back in Japan as its initial version in 2013. And then we finally got the ultimate or the 4G version in uh, 2015 with the new Nintendo 3DS. This is, of course, developed by Capcom. And uh, it's just the excellent Monster Hunter 4 Ultimate. Kaza, why is the last game that you're taking with you Monster Hunter 4 Ultimate? I can't get bored of it. It is, I, I can't get bored of Monster Hunter. I don't understand why, but I just can't. Um, I, I started playing Monster Hunter years and years back because I had the flu, and I had a copy of. Like, I had a, fr- I had a friend who was um, who actually worked at Capcom at the time, who had it was Monster Hunter Two, Monster Hunter Freedom Unite, I think maybe. Um, uh, the PSP. Yeah, the, yeah, the PSP. Yeah, so basically, yeah. I was really sick. I couldn't leave my bed. I had a PSP with Monster Hunter 2 Ultimate or whatever it was on it. And uh, I I did the I did the thing you have to do with the Souls games and I got over the wall. There's always a wall with Monster Hunter where you have to learn how the game works. It seems impossible yes. for us. And you know, it's again it's it's a game about impossible odds or overwhelming odds, um, until you get the hang of it, of course. And you're learning that you can't run up and just press X at something until it dies. I mean, this, I mean, Monster Hunter is another series of games that respects you as a player enough to be like, no, you've got to learn how to do it properly. Um, and if you don't like it, well, then you can quit. Yeah, it exactly. Is that definitely that type of game. Yes, and I, I, I kind of respect that. And so, um, yeah, I, I got over, I remember my, my, my particular one was the young Kuku in Monster Hunter Freedom. I couldn't fucking kill it. And it was because I was using a big, <laughs> slow weapon. And I hadn't kind of figured out that you just need to start using other weapons. You know, and um, anyway, I, I defeated this young cuckoo. And since then, I've been a real monster hunter addict. I play all of them that come out. Well, not all of them actually. I usually skip, so I'll do one one year, and I'll skip the one the next year, and then I'll do the next year after that. Um, but the kind of core thing of fighting really big, amazing monsters, making hats out yeah. of their entrails, and uh, <laughs> you know, doing all that in the company of, of other people, as it just never gets old for me for some reason, and. Um, I feel like the the craft again, like the 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 monsters in Monster Hunter are the absolute best creatures in all of video games, except perhaps some of the Witcher Three's creatures. But in general, like the, the personality of them and the way they interact with their environment, like they feel like beasts that really exist. You feel like you're really hunting them. They're just um, like animals in the wild. They literally have their own personality, and the the animation is so convincing about cool. how they act. It's amazing. Yeah, the, the animation's fantastic. Um, the way that they behave when you're watching them and you're not fighting them, you know, they're, they're, they're believable animals. And I, I kind of love, um, you know, po- Pokemon's another thing that taps into this, but I'm, I'm really into the natural world. I like animals a lot. Um, yeah. And um, I, I get, I get a real kick out of, out of the, um, the creatures and, and kind of the, their, their habitats and things and how believable they are within that setting. A monster hunter, as, as well as being just really good, addictive kind of, clever loop based game uh, is also 
really well made and really well crafted and has fantastic relatable monsters some fantastical beasts but i never seen it does make you it, it sorry it does make you feel like an actual hunter like oh i i'd like you like you're almost touching the ground and like i i know what lives here kind of like i'm such a such a, a great anthropologist like i know exactly what lives here yeah what x what what its sort of you patterns start, are and you all start that to feel like a really violent attenborough Sort of touching down in, in, the, in the jungle and being like, I know everything that lives here. And I'm going to kill it all. No cats. And I'm going to going to take its scales and make some armor out of it. Yeah. <laughs> I love the scale of the monster. Even on a tiny 3DS, Monster Hunter games have really impressive scale. They feel big. Monsters feel big. And when you're fighting something huge, you feel like the you know your heart rises and your, the adrenaline is there. Um, and it's also really funny. They're so funny. The the very lighthearted. Um, the cats that you you play you play with cats in Monster Hunter are also a huge plus. Yeah. Uh, and the felines, and they, they get funnier and you know cuter with every outing, and they're just real light relief from the grind. Well, what, what can sometimes feel like the grind of trying to beat a huge boss, and. Uh, or just trying to finish that armor set that might be taking yeah. a little longer than usual. That kind yeah. of thing. And the thing is, there are lots of things in Monster Hunter that I would normally hate. Like, it's very grindy. And I'm normally not into that at all. But for some reason in Monster Hunter, I just, I can't, I just can't get bored of it, dude. I can't. Like, it's because it's, I think it's because the grinds are basically giant boss fights every time. Yeah. Like, that, it's hard to not like. And it is kind of I a rush every single time. I still get a rush out of taking down a Rathalos. But how many Rathaloses must I have killed over the last 10 years? Like so many, but for some reason they still just really get kick every single time because <laughs> you've achieved something. Um, I think it's also because I think a, I think a big part of that is because, like, you can't let yourself slip uh, in attention. Like you'll you'll just get destroyed mm-hmm. and you'll have to start all over again. And and it, the game still, even as you get better and you get better armor and you get better reacting, it's like it's it's not a game that takes it easy on you like if you don't pay attention or you sort of something diverts you for a, like a quick minute or something you just you get destroyed and you die and you you have to go all the way back and you have to run all the way back to it and stuff <laughs> it's like that i think that rush comes from every time you have to be strategic and sort of take your time and understand the monster um which i think is so unique about Monster Hunter itself. Yeah, again, and this is something that I've realised that pretty much most of the games on my list have in common. It feels consequential when you're playing it. Right? It feels like what you're doing matters. And uh, the, the challenge and reward cycle of it just, just pleases my brain. I never get sick of it. So are you still playing Ultimate now, or have you moved on to uh, what is it, Monster Hunter Generations? For Ultimate, I played for maybe two 200 and something hours. Um, oh. and, then, and then I stopped. Like, I tend to take a year off with Monster Hunters because they are often... Like, I, just, I play them all the time when, I, when I'm on one. And, uh, yeah. you know, apart from anything else from my job, I have to play other stuff. So I tend to take... I've not played Ultimate. I'm going to take, take a year off for Ultimate. I'll play the next one that comes along, which will hopefully be on the Nintendo Switch. Well, that's what I was going to say that as well. Like so good. I love that because the original two Monster Hunters were both... And Monster Hunter Try, actually, as well. Um, we're both on big screens, yeah. Uh, as well as on the and then the the PSP versions were the ones that made Monster Hunter a huge phenomenon. Also, I really like the developer of Monster Hunter, um, Ryozo Sujimoto. 
he's like Tsujimoto-san. <laughs> it amuses me because like the Capcom the Capcom story is very interesting actually. The guy who runs Capcom, Daddy Tsujimoto, I can't remember his real name. I always call him Daddy yeah. Tsujimoto. But he's the kind of patriarch of Capcom. And yeah, he's, he's not, the he's the granddaddy almost. Yeah, and he's not particularly interested in games at all. And you know, he his his passion is that he grows wine. He has vineyards in California. And he owns this incredibly posh wine bar in, in one of the bits of Tokyo that normal people don't usually walk in, uh, that I went to once in Japan. And so his three sons, the other Sujimotos, I think one of them is like the CEO of Capcom. One of them yeah, is one's... the CFO, is that right? The pre- I think one's the president. Yes. Like, like Daddy Sujimoto is like the chairman, I think. Then it goes down. But then you have... I forget what his first name is. Uh, the Sujimoto we're talking about in terms of Monster Hunter. Yeah. So you've got like the two good sons, one of whom is in, you know, is the president or, or whatever, the chairman, and the other who is uh, the, I think, the, the financial guy. And then they've got the rock star Sujimoto, <laughs> Ryozo Sujimoto, <laughs> who just made Monster Hunter casually. Like he was, he was, he's very much like he walks around in, in leather jackets and stuff, and he's, he's got a good sense of humour. And he's just, he's a very cool guy, but you get the impression that his family is like, oh, what the hell are we going to do with Ryozo? Oh, <laughs> well, let's just let him make games, shall we? And then he came up with a fucking monster hunter. It's perfect. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> he's just like, no, guys, I'll just make games. You you, you can run the company. Yeah, was, I mean, was, you do get the impression that like. it's like, he was like Black Sheep Sujimoto, and yet here he is with one of the most successful games of all time on his, on his hands. I think that's fantastic. It's just so typical of a Japanese company <laughs> to do <laughs> such a thing. <laughs> Everything is inherited family-wise, and yeah, there's always kind of one black sheep of a family, and um, <laughs> they go on to be probably the most influential. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Monster Hunter now in the West has just become this huge, magnificent series that so many people play. But if you go back to you know Freedom Unite, which is what I played in university, very little people played it. So oh, yeah, I was constantly converting people uh, over the course of the you know decade or so since I started playing Monster Hunter. I've slowly converted almost all of my games friends to playing Monster Hunter. But it got a lot easier with Four Ultimate because it's just it's so much fun. <laughs> it's really fun. You can play it on your 3DS. You don't have to dick around. If you're trying to play online on PSP. Was I think actually impossible. You had to. You had to. I think free no Freedom Unite was the first one you could play. Was it local? Yeah, and then co-op, but it t- it took like ten hours yeah, before you really, could get to. There was like some workaround you could do to make it work online, but it was really complex. And you know, it's, it, so it's, it's so much easier. Now. Arduous. Yeah, it was arduous. <laughs> it's so much easier now. I mean, when I when I lived in Japan, Monster Hunter was um, kind of at the zenith, I think, of its popularity at that point. And, yeah, uh, but you just whip out your PSP, and someone around you would be playing, so it was a very different deal. Like you didn't really need the online. Whereas, yeah, you know, here the online was integral to to it picking up popularity. I think. Yeah, and it's weird because you know I still go into like my local electronic stores, and there'll always be someone, someone in there who has who is just in there to play a game, and they're just standing playing their DS, and it'll be either two games. It'll either be uh, Monster Hunter, or if it's a kid, it'll either be Pokemon or Yokai Watch, and it's yeah. literally nothing else. Um, most adults play Monster Hunter over here in Japan. It's yeah crazy it's crazy well keza i think we've sort of come to the end now and 
we have to send you on your way, which I, I still feel terrible about. Um, <laughs> I'll be all right. Don't worry about me. But I, I, I don't know whether you've cheated the system where you're, you're sort of harboring <laughs> another human <laughs> to take with you. I guess I'll have some company. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it might be difficult to survive and raise a child, though, on Outside Island by yourself. Well, there's lots of um, pigs. I'm sure the pigs will help. Oh, yeah, there are. But you have to catch them first. That's true. Yeah, that would be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kesa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, but I do have one last question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, a question I have to ask everyone before they leave. And, and we take away... We, we stray a little away from games. And we we think more about the consoles that um, we've played over the years. And specifically, like, if you could take just one, thinking about all of the back catalogue that comes with it, not um, sort of backwards compatibility of course not um just the just the back catalog of that console uh what is the console that you would take with you do i have internet on this island you do have internet but you can't take the pc that's tough i mean really it should be a nintendo console something like the ds but then the but but then the PlayStation 2 and the Xbox 360, the back catalogue of huge, hugely good, diverse titles as oh, well. I, know. I, I would say probably for sheer diversity, um, either the Xbox 360 or the PS2. There's just there's so much. Probably the PS2. There's so much you can play on the PS2. Um, if if you had to take based on pure console, like you like the console for what it is, not so much the games, what, what console would it be then? PS4, to be honest. Oh really? Well, I love the PS4. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> so it's great, what... and it will eventually have all the games I want on the darn Nintendo. I was gonna say it's it's getting there. It's definitely getting there. So what, what do you think, PS2 or PS4? I'll take the PS2 for its back catalogue right now. Okay then. Well, the PS2 can go with you, and the eight games you've chosen as well. Keza, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Time it's to really fun. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on, finally, after all this time. And I wish you absolutely the best with uh, the coming weeks. Thank you. Hopefully, hopefully you get some time to play some games as well. <laughs> yeah, here's something, man. Here's something. Um, before we go, then, please tell the wonderful people who have listened so far where they can find you on the internet and also what they should be checking out. You can find me at the moment on the Twitters, uh, where I am imaginatively at Peasant McDonald's. Uh, my website, Kotaku UK is at kotaku.co.uk. If you read Kotaku in general, you're looking at some pretty ace games journalism, in my opinion. I love working there. I think they do fantastic work. Excellent. Well, thank you so much to Keza, and thank you so much once again for listening to this episode of Final Games. You can obviously find us on the internet as well. You can find us on Twitter at Final Games Show. And then you can find me as well if you want to follow me. For whatever reason, I talk about mostly Nintendo games in Japan. So if you like that thing, you can do that. You can follow me at LiamBME. You can also email me at uh, finalgamespodcast at gmail.com. And also you can find the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and all those wonderful podcasting apps that everyone uses. So thank you once again for listening to Final Games. And I hope you'll join me again next week as I cast off another wonderful games guest uh, to a horrible deserted land. I don't know why I do this. Quite cruel, aren't I, really? But there, thank you so much, and thank you to Keza. And we'll see you again next week. Goodbye.